Hachette Audio presents The Antisocial Network The GameStop Short Squeeze and the Ragtag Group of Amateur Traders That Brought Wall Street to Its Knees Written by Ben Mesrick Read by Fager Al-Casey For Asher and Arya Who basically lived at GameStop on Boylston until the pandemic hit And for Bugsy who was always right there beside them. Author's Note The Antisocial Network is a dramatic narrative account of one of the most unique moments in Wall Street history, based on dozens of interviews, hours of testimony, first-person sources, and thousands of pages of documents, including records from a number of court proceedings. Though there are different and often contentious opinions about some of the events in the story, to the best of my ability, I recreated the scenes in the book based on the information I uncovered. Some dialogue has been recreated. In some instances, certain descriptions and character names have been altered at the request of my sources to protect privacy. Although over the years, I have spent many hours browsing the aisles of my local GameStop, I was, after all, a video game junkie during my 20s, came of age in the era of Pac-Man and Donkey Kong, and have an 11-year-old who can name every character in Fortnite and Roblox. I can honestly say that I never expected to write a book that revolved around the company, or, at least, the company's stock. Like many people around the world, trapped at home during the height of the pandemic, I watched the market turmoil that came to a head the week of January 25, 2021, with a mixture of amazement and amusement. There was no question that something dramatic was happening. A David versus Goliath story involving a ragtag group of amateur investors, gamers, and internet trolls taking on one of the biggest hedge funds on Wall Street. But it wasn't until I delved deeper into the story that I began to think that it was also something significant, that we were all seeing from our quarantine couches and our masked-up, socially distanced perches, was the first shot in a revolution, one that threatens to upend the financial establishment as we know it. The deeper I looked, the more I believed, the battle that drove the price of a single share of GameStop to a pre-market high of $500 on January 28th had origins that dated back to Occupy Wall Street and beyond, when an anger toward big banks and the havoc wreaked in the last economic meltdown bubbled up into largely impotent protests and sit-ins. At the same time, the rise of GME could also be seen as the culmination of a populist movement that began with the intersection of social media and the growth of simplified democratizing financial portals, tech that weakened the old-world pillars propping up the financial establishment, represented by the biggest upstart in the business, Robinhood, and its millions of mostly millennial devotees. What seems certain to me is that this first revolutionary shot, fired directly at Wall Street, if not from Main Street, from the basement of an amateur trader a few blocks away, is only the beginning. Those old-world pillars, Protecting the suits and ties from the rabble outside no longer seems so firm. A sea change has begun, right alongside the crypto revolution with very similar philosophical implications. It's impossible to know where this change will lead, how Wall Street will respond, whether what has now been unleashed by social media can even be contained. But historically, revolutions fed by anger tend to go in the same direction. At some point, once the pillars start to shake, the walls inevitably fall. Part 1 There's deep value, 
Then there's deep fucking value. Keith Gill. Chapter 1. January 26th, 2021. Eight minutes past four in the afternoon. A glass-walled office on the 22nd floor of a skyscraper on Madison Avenue. Desolate, vacant, the lights dimmed, the empty trading desks lined up and lifeless, like high-tech terracotta soldiers, chairs pushed in, and Bloomberg terminals dark. A place that one year earlier would have been brimming with activity, the pulsing, beating heart at the center of one of the most powerful and successful hedge funds in the world. Now, quiet, along with all the other offices and all the other skyscrapers in the pincushion that was New York. Twelve hundred miles away, tethered to that slumbering core by a somehow still functioning circulatory system of cell towers, satellites, and fiber optic cables, Gabe Plotkin's world was coming to an end. This can't be happening. His tailored Oxford shirt was soaked through, and his tie felt like a noose around his neck, shifting up and down with each exaggerated throb of his rapidly accelerating pulse. His jacket was already off, draped over a corner of his chair, but it didn't make any difference. If he had been at his desk in that office on Madison Avenue, instead of lodged in an extra bedroom in his rented pandemic home in Florida, it would have been 30 degrees outside the picture window behind him, the kind of view generally reserved for Wall Street bankers, still staggering despite the sparse traffic snaking through the pin cushion of Midtown and between the COVID-emptied sidewalks, and he'd have turned the heat as far down as it would go. But here, in Florida, the rivulets of sweat ran down the back of his neck and dampened the seams of his brightly patterned socks. Impossible. Gabe's eyes watered as he stared at the computer screen in front of him. The chart on the screen was inconceivable, and yet there it was, a daggered mountain that rose like Everest where no mountain should have existed. Even as he watched, seconds ticking away at the bottom of the screen, charting the first few minutes of after-hours trading on an otherwise unremarkable Tuesday afternoon, that mountain was growing right in front of his eyes, exponentially, steeper and steeper, threatening to burst right out of the top of the goddamn screen. Disastrous. Gabe leaned back against his chair, bewildered. He'd seen trades go south before. Hell, he'd been in the business long enough to know that the truly successful firms were defined by how they dealt with failed positions, not how they celebrated when things went right. Like any good trader, he'd learned that lesson the hard way. Fourteen years ago, Gabe had been a fresh hire at Steve Cohen's SAC Capital Advisors, at the time one of Wall Street's most storied financial behemoths, $16 billion under management the highest returning hedge fund of its era, before becoming embroiled in an insider trading scandal in 2013. At SAC, Gabe had spent the first half of 2007 on a meteoric run, turning a $450 million bankroll into a $1 billion treasure chest, marking him as one of the hottest traders on the street. SAC had begun handing him more and more money to invest, when just as suddenly, Gabe's positions had teetered and crashed. By the end of that summer, he'd lost 80% of his investments. It had been an existential moment. Many traders would have packed it in. But Gabe had been resilient. He'd picked himself up, wiped the blood from his nose, put a frozen stake against his bruised and beaten eyes. He'd learned to rely on his process, 
continually reassessing his positions in a rapidly changing environment. By the end of that year, he'd made back every penny he'd lost, and then some. Over the next six years, he'd grown into one of the top traders at SAC in the fallout of the SEC investigation that had turned SAC inside out, leaving Steve Cohen himself mostly untouched but sending a couple of his traders to prison. It had come time for Gabe to open up his own shop. He'd promptly raised $1 billion, part of it from Cohen's new manifestation, .72, and after that, Gabe had never looked back. He'd built a diverse team of the right people who could trade at the highest levels, humble but willing to work hard. Eight years later, Melvin Capital was now one of the brightest lights on the street. From its inception in 2014, Melvin had achieved annual returns of 30% all the way through 2020. In 2020, the firm was up 52.5% net. Gabe's star had gone supernova. He'd personally earned, reportedly, over $800 million last year alone, and was rapidly collecting the accoutrement of his growing station at the top of the banking hegemony. There was the minority ownership in a professional sports team, the Charlotte Hornets, which made him partners with Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, one of his childhood idols. A lavish apartment on the east side, and of course, there was even the Miami waterfront mansion. Actually, the one mansion hadn't been big enough, so he'd bought two mansions next to each other for $44 million, intending to knock one down to make room for a tennis court, a cabana, and a kid's playground. The place had come complete with a private dock, which meant Gabe would certainly need a boat, because what good was a dock without a boat? For that matter, what self-respecting hedge fund titan with $13 billion under management didn't have a boat? But staring at the screen and that digital Everest spiking upward, Pixel after nauseating pixel. Thoughts of palaces in Miami, pickup basketball games with Michael Jordan, and pitifully boatless private docks were far from Gabe's mind. What he was seeing wasn't possible, and yet it was unmistakable. Despite all logic and reason, despite months of intense research, despite many soul-crushing hours spent sifting through financial reports and on phone calls with analysts and experts, he was about to be handed the biggest loss of his career. A loss so large it might destroy everything he had built. And bigger than that, Gabe worried, it would sound an alarm bell that would clang through all of Wall Street with ramifications that would be felt for years to come. Gabe's Melvin Capital, which he'd named after his grandfather, a convenience store owner, one of the most honest, hard-working men he'd ever known, had reportedly lost nearly $5 billion in a matter of days, much of it in the last 24 hours. All of it because of what began with a single stock of a company that was almost too ludicrous to name. A stock that should have been crashing, but instead was flying through the roof. Gabe, one of the most powerful men on Wall Street, had just been bested by some unseen force. Something, he would soon learn, that was growing in the deepest, darkest corners of social media. A revolution, firing its very first shot across the establishment's bow. And perhaps the biggest indignity of it all, the coup de grace had been delivered by a single tweet just minutes ago from the biggest troll on the entire internet. Gabe closed his eyes. 
Thoughts of boats, Jordan, Miami, flickered and tangled up like images on a strip of film that had come unhoused from the projector. He took a deep breath and turned the computer off. Then he reached for his phone. Chapter 2, December 2020. Six weeks earlier and 400 miles away, Jeremy Poe, 22 years old and built like a wire hanger that had been untangled and extended to break in through the crease in the window of a locked car, stood by himself at an institutional-style metal table at the front of the vast presidential ballroom of the Washington Duke Inn and Golf Club, wondering how in the hell it had all come to this. The only thing he knew for sure was that this wasn't what his senior year of college was supposed to be like. He'd seen all the movies, read all the brochures, Senior year was supposed to be bar hopping and keg parties, class dances, maybe a romance or two, afternoons hanging out on the quad, and bull sessions in his dorm room that went on all night, until the morning light streamed in through his window and his alarm went off, telling him he was late for class. But who cared, really, because it was senior year, the last gasp before college ended and the real world came roaring in. Instead, he was standing in a gigantic ballroom along with a dozen of his classmates, lined up in staggered, socially distanced lines beneath elegant chandeliers dripping teardrops of crystal. Each kid, like him, waiting for a turn at that frighteningly sterile steel table cluttered with vials, specimen bottles, and sanitizing lotion. There was a nurse a few feet away, watching Jeremy with eyes that might have been blue, but just as easily could have been green. At least, Jeremy thought she was a nurse. She was wearing a mask and a face shield and rubber gloves, but then again, so were a lot of people inside the ballroom. And also out on campus and in the streets of Durham, and for that matter, on TV and in the newspapers and just about everywhere else. High fashion in the age of COVID. But this woman also had on scrubs, which meant she probably knew what she was doing. And despite the way the light from the chandeliers splashed obscuring patterns across her face shield, Jeremy could see the impatience in her blue or green or blue-green eyes. Jeremy offered an apologetic smile as he readied himself for the task ahead. He wasn't wearing a face shield, and his own mask was down under his chin, but only because of the thing he'd held in his right hand, six inches long and topped with an evil-looking wisp of cotton. A cruel twist on the party skewer. And, to Jeremy's thinking, this was about as far from a party as a college senior could get. At least the ballroom itself was mildly festive. The carpet beneath his feet was lush and ornately patterned in reds and blues. And there were thick velvet drapes surrounding the many windows that looked out onto one of North Carolina's premier golf courses. And, of course, there were those chandeliers, sprouting from the ridiculously high ceiling like frozen, sparkly jellyfish, glistening tendrils waving in the breeze from the specially designed air circulators that had been set around the perimeter of the room. Nothing to it, the nurse said, her voice muffled by her mask. Just stick it in your nostril, give it a few turns, and leave it in the specimen container on the table. Jeremy tried to think of something witty to say back, but then decided that the moment wasn't right. It was hard to be suave when you were about to stick something up your nose. Sure, this was better than the test they used to use back in the spring before the campus had shut down when COVID first hit. That damn swab had been twice as long, and it seemed to go right up into your brain. Truth be told, 
Jeremy was usually pretty good at small talk and making people laugh. He probably would have had a chance of at least getting a positive reaction out of the nurse if he had been holding a cocktail skewer instead of a nostril-bound swab. Then again, though he wasn't shy, he was quirky, with an idiosyncratic personality. Although he'd made a few good friends over his first three years at Duke, he had really been looking forward to senior year to build on that social framework, bust out in a bigger way. When he thought about it, he knew the quirkiness wasn't entirely his fault. His upbringing had been, in a word, unique. Not a lot of kids could say they'd grown up on a boat, bouncing along the coast of Florida when he wasn't zigzagging between various Caribbean islands. For much of his childhood, his morning commute had involved tide charts and docking fees, and his only real companions had been his family, his dad and mom and his younger brother, Casper. You didn't gain any normal social skills on a 44-foot catamaran, and by the time he'd hit junior high and entered a regular school, he'd already developed some eccentric habits. But he'd put in a lot of work on his personality since then, and gotten much of his anxieties and social awkwardness under control. Still, under the most ideal of circumstances, it was always hard breaking the ice with strangers, and this particular circumstance was far from ideal. At the moment, the best he could manage was an amiable smile. He couldn't tell if the nurse smiled back because of the mask, but he took it for a win. Then he turned his attention back to the swab, stuck it in his nose, and gave it a confident twist. Twenty minutes later, Jeremy's nostril was still stinging as he shook the remnants of a hard drizzle from his hooded sweatshirt, kicking his sneakers off in the foyer of his economical one-bedroom off-campus apartment. The Dunworthy Pines, a sprawling complex of multi-story residences on the south side of Durham, wasn't anywhere near as flashy as its name, which made Jeremy think of a daytime soap opera. Pretty people playing out dramatic storylines while congregating in bikinis and speedos around a lavish communal swimming pool. But it wasn't entirely awful. There was indeed a swimming pool, and even a man-made lake, both of which Jeremy could have seen through the sliding glass doors on the far end of his living room if the shades hadn't been currently drawn. And the grounds around the lake were fairly manicured, a maze of low bushes and pruned trees crisscrossed by cobbled and stone paths designed for walking. Though the Pines was teeming with college kids who, like Jeremy, had opted to avoid the cramped accommodations of the college's main campus, there wasn't any congregating going on, at least that he was aware of. It was mostly strangers sharing hallways, everyone hiding behind masks and invisible six-foot repulsion fields, doing their damned best to keep to themselves. When Jeremy had first arrived on campus, he'd been pretty lonely, which was saying a lot for a kid who'd grown up on a boat. But then at his father's urging, he'd taken the initiative to create a bubble with a few of his classmates who happened to live in the same complex. Carl, two floors above Jeremy, was one of his best friends at Duke a biology major and martial arts hobbyist who taught Jeremy both how to wrestle and how to better maintain a healthy lifestyle, helping him keep himself physically fit despite how focused he was on academics. Carl's girlfriend, Josie, who was a better wrestler than either Jeremy or Carl, studied applied math and political science. And a third classmate, Michael, whom Jeremy had met in his advanced linear algebra class, happened to share Jeremy's double major, math and psychology which meant they had a joint penchant for making themselves miserable, coupled with a drive to figure out why they were chasing said misery. Between Jeremy's bubble, which got together twice a week, 
and his course load, which included such mouthfuls as Bayesian statistics, probabilistic machine learning, and the cinema of psychopathology. It was almost possible to forget that the outside world had come to a grinding halt. Jeremy yanked his hood back as he moved deeper into his apartment, freeing his tangled mop of reddish hair, which sprang up above his high forehead like some sort of demented, rust-colored halo. He hadn't been to a barber since before COVID, though he had tried to take clippers to himself a handful of times over the past few months, to his own detriment. Then again, one of the benefits of a pandemic was that it didn't really matter how you looked, when most of your social life took place through a little square floating around the screen of your laptop. Zoom was the great equalizer, and a good high-definition webcam beat a proper haircut every time. Jeremy moved deeper into his apartment, pulling his cell phone out of his pocket as he went. A little green light on a speaker planted halfway up a set of bookshelves that separated the foyer from the living area told him the magic of Bluetooth was already two steps ahead of him. And with a flick of his finger, he coaxed the music app on his phone to life. As usual, his playlist was queued up to his favorite song, and the first hyperkinetic chords of some seriously frenetic Japanese pop spiraled out at him from the speaker, like explosive ringlets of invisible electronic confetti. Kanako Ito, of course, because for the past year or so, it was almost always Kanako Ito. Her real name was Ito Kanako. In Japanese, they put the last name first. One of the many things Jeremy had learned as his love for anime, and specifically for a series called Neon Genesis Evangelion, had ballooned into a near obsession. Jeremy had consumed Evangelion in one marathon sitting after he'd been introduced to the mid-90s Japanese TV production by a well-traveled cousin. The plot of the anime series, which had included manga, movies, and video games, on top of the 26 original episodes, was incredibly complex, involving a global apocalypse, enormous bio-robots battling even bigger monsters, mysticism, Judeo-Christian imagery, and lots of teenage angst. The series was made even more impenetrable by the fact that Jeremy had watched it all the first time through in the original Japanese, which he didn't speak, but even so he had concluded that it was an absolute masterpiece and he'd often posited that it was, in fact, a miracle that something that good had ever been made. He'd spent many hours trying to decode the story and its themes using every internet source at his disposal, a journey that had led him even deeper into anime, where he'd discovered countless more series, such as Kaguya-sama, Love is War, Kiki's Delivery Service, and the science adventure series of visual novels, including Stein's Gate and Robotics Notes the latter of which he had binged, the whole forty hours' worth, in three or four days. From the anime, it had been a short hop to the music, Kanako Ito, Kikuo, Pop, and Metal. At the end of his junior year, while writing a paper on algebraic number theory, he'd listened to a single Japanese metal album fifteen times in a row over the course of a week, during which he'd taken repeated breaks to dance, letting the music move him like a puppet to get his creative juices flowing. At the moment, as he crossed his apartment toward the desk in the corner by the glass back doors, where his laptop computer waited, he wasn't dancing, but he did have his Neon Genesis Evangelion t-shirt on under his hoodie, and there was at least one book of manga on the desk's glass and chrome top by the laptop's keyboard. The desk itself, shiny, sheer, glossy, with retractable legs and way too many wheeled feet, 
could have doubled for a mechanized battle robot in a pinch. Jeremy's brother, Casper, had put the damn thing together when Jeremy had first moved into the apartment. It was something that would have taken Jeremy a few days to accomplish, but Casper had finished the job in a short afternoon. Casper had always been the more practical-minded of the pair, which was probably why he had chosen to major in civil engineering, while Jeremy had taken the more theoretical route, which meant that although they were both focused on mathematics at the same university, separated only by two years, they'd barely crossed paths even before the pandemic. Unlike Jeremy and despite COVID, Casper had chosen to experience his sophomore year from a dorm room on campus because he'd wanted to be closer to his friends. From what Jeremy had gleaned from the first few weeks of the fall semester, a barrage of quarantines, weekly testings, social distancing requirements, it didn't seem like Casper would have it much better than Jeremy, as isolated as he was. It hadn't taken long for Jeremy to realize, whether it was in a dorm surrounded by classmates or in an apartment surrounded by strangers, a pandemic was something you went through alone. As he lowered himself into the chair in front of his desk, he yanked his mask from his chin and tossed it toward a nearby garbage can. He missed by a good yard, the flicker of crumpled medical-grade paper landing next to a pile of dirty clothes. Sooner or later, he'd cart the pile down to the shared laundry room in the basement of his complex. Who knows? Maybe he'd get lucky and someone would be at one of the other machines. Maybe he would have a conversation in person. An activity he vaguely remembered involving a real interchange of thoughts turned into words, thoughts that might even have nothing to do with coronaviruses or the proper use of PPE or testing rituals, thoughts communicated without the use of computer software or a wireless router. He smiled at the idea, then began to hit keys on his laptop, powering up the sleeping screen. To his right, beyond the collection of manga, stood an imposing stack of math textbooks, most with titles that would have terrified anyone he'd met in a laundry room even at a university like Duke. Next to the books, a pad of yellow-lined paper, the first few pages of which were already filled with the beginnings of a problem set that had been assigned even before school had returned to session. But at the moment, as his fingers danced across the keyboard, his thoughts were not on his homework, or the anime, or even friendly imaginary strangers in equally imaginary COVID-free conversations in less-than-imaginary laundry rooms. Instead, his focus was on the laptop, which, since the start of his senior year, had pretty much become the center of his universe. Not just because it was where he would soon be attending his classes and conducting much of his socializing. Apart from school and his existing network of friends and family, he'd recently discovered a new endeavor, which was taking up more and more of his time. An interest that had started as a curiosity had progressed to something of a hobby, and was rapidly becoming another of his obsessions, right alongside his passions for anime, Japanese pop, and anxiety-inducing introspection. While he continued to hit keys on the keyboard, he once again removed his phone from his pocket and placed it on top of the book of manga. A deft flick of his thumb shifted the phone's screen from his music library to a different app, the display turning an instantly appealing leafy shade of green, broken only by an image a third of the way from the top, a feather, as if floating down from above the phone, plucked from the brim of some fairy tale character's hat. Something about that image always made Jeremy's adrenaline kick in. He assumed the reaction was Pavlovian, involving a minute dopamine hit from some overcharged structure in his brain. He had no doubt that the people who had designed that screen had spent hours contemplating colors, shades, and pictures. 
He'd read somewhere that casinos employed dozens of scientists when they designed their gaming halls to find the perfect blend of lighting, materials, decorations, even scents, to engage their customers on a subliminal, primal level. He had no idea if the people behind the app on his phone had gone to similar lengths in building their home screen. All he knew for sure was that a glance at his phone hit him like the first chords of his favorite Kanako Ito. But before he gave in to the sudden urge he had to shift past that home screen and deeper into the app, he turned his attention back to his laptop. In the few moments since he'd sat at his desk, he'd already scrolled past his emails, pushed aside a couple of Word documents and a math project in progress. Now, dominating the center of the screen was something else, and the minute his eyes began scanning along, he found that he was grinning. Jeremy knew that in real life, he could be more than a little quirky and sometimes self-limiting in his interactions with others. Pastimes like theoretical math, anime, and a healthy fear of COVID didn't lend themselves to developing much of an overly large friend network. But, trapped in his apartment, with his Japanese pop blaring and his math homework piling up, he had recently found something else to take its place. That screen in front of him was no longer some two-dimensional tool to connect him to places and people he used to visit and see, it had become a portal to an entirely new community, one that was becoming more real and encompassing, even as the actual world became more bizarre and unsocial day by day. He leaned forward, scanning the screen as his smile grew. Okay, fellow apes and retards, he whispered to himself. What do you have for me today? Chapter 3 Wilmington, Massachusetts a little before six on a frigid night, the kind of New England evening where the air was so cold you could see the wind as much as feel it. A pretty street, tucked into the corner of a leafy, sleepy suburb, twenty minutes along the commuter rail from downtown Boston. The kind of place where you closed your eyes and twenty years flashed past. Keith Gill, thirty-four, with high cheekbones, piercing brown hazel eyes, and a magnificent mane of shoulder-length hair that perhaps tended toward mullet when you saw it from the side, stood in the frozen grass of his postcard-sized lawn, straining his arms to lift his two-year-old daughter onto the top of the plastic slide that squatted in the shadow of his three-bedroom home. His daughter was smiling in the way only a two-year-old on the top of a slide could smile, an expression of pure joy tinged with anticipation, without the slightest hint of fear, she just wanted to slip over that edge and go fast, faster, as fast as she could. No doubt she got that from her father. For as long as Keith could remember, he'd been fast, and striving to go faster. Even now, midway into his thirties, every cell in him felt the spark of that dormant kinetic energy. When he was a kid, the hardest thing in the world had been to sit still. Earlier than he could even remember, he'd funneled that bottled-up drive into running. He'd just point himself in a direction and go. And by the age of 12, he'd already made a name for himself as the fastest kid in his neighborhood. It had been a different suburb then. Keith had grown up in Brockton, a more working-class version of Wilmington, one of three children to a father who drove a truck for a living and a mother who worked as a registered nurse. Brockton wasn't rich or fancy or pretty, but it was proud as hell the kind of place that only looked over its shoulder long enough to land a good elbow. A place cocky enough to call itself the City of Champions, 
refusing to give up the title even after nearby Boston and its longtime Mayor Menino pointed out that all the championship parades ran down Boylston Street, not Route 28. Tom Brady was the goat, and guys like Bork and Bird and Ortiz could make miracles, but anyone from Brockton could tell you where the real champions were from. Guys like Rocky Marciano and Marvin Hagler, who worked their way up from public high schools, and right there alongside them was Keith Gill, gravitating to track because he wasn't quite good enough for pro baseball or big enough to play football or mean enough to play hockey. And besides, damn it, he was fast. In short order, the fastest kid in the neighborhood became the fastest kid in his hometown. Then he was the fastest kid at Brockton High School. And by the time he matriculated to nearby Stonehill College, he was known as one of the top racing prospects in the state. At Stonehill, the records had continued to accumulate. He ran the indoor 800 at 1 minute 52 seconds, the 1,000 meter at a hair above 2 minutes 24 seconds, and a 4.03 mile, which put him in the elite of college runners. Fewer than 1,500 people in the world had broken a 4-minute mile, and Keith was just a few breaths away. Earning himself the title of Division II Indoor Athlete of the Year, and landing himself, along with his track racing brother, Kevin, in the pages of Sports Illustrated, if it hadn't been for a combination of serious injuries involving his Achilles tendon and a lingering bout of mono, there was no telling where Keith's innate speed would have taken him. He might even have been able to follow his dream and pursue a professional track career. Then again, Keith was fully aware that track wasn't football or hockey. You didn't retire rich from running fast. Keith took another breath of the frigid air and stepped back to watch his daughter, as she tilted forward, then took off down the cold plastic slide. Her squeal cut through the night air, making Keith smile. He could see his wife, Caroline, through the first floor window that looked in on their compact kitchen, and she was smiling too. It wasn't a four-minute mile, but a guy like him growing up where he had grown up could have done a lot worse than the quiet, simple life he'd built for himself. A home, rented to be sure, but still, a wife, a kid, a job, maybe not a dream job. Hell, nobody dreamed about working for what some might call a second-tier insurance company like Mass Mutual, and certainly nobody fantasized about what Keith actually did day-to-day, -day, which was to develop financial education classes that financial advisors, people who made twice as much as Keith, who had gone to better colleges and probably had grown up to richer parents, but no way in hell could have run anywhere near a four-minute mile, could present to prospective clients. Keith himself wasn't entirely sure how he himself had ended up at Mass Mutual. Bottom line was, 2009 had not been the best year to be graduating from college and looking for a job. Despite the fact that he was the first in his family to earn a four-year degree, graduating from Stonehill hadn't exactly thrown open the doors to an easy future. A kid from Brockton with few connections didn't have a ton of options, and being so close to Boston had as many disadvantages as advantages. Competing with brainiacs from Harvard and Tufts and the rich kids from BU for the handful of available positions hadn't been easy. From 2009 to 2017, Keith had spent much of his time unemployed. When he'd gotten the job at Mass Mutual at the beginning of 2019, he'd been completely out of work for the better part of two years. It wasn't a dream situation, but it did put food on the table. And as he told himself every day, pre-pandemic, when he'd strapped on a tie and fought the traffic on 93 to Mass Mutual's office, it was a job in finance. As a kid, he'd always been good with numbers, 
and he loved looking for edges that other people didn't see. His mother often told a story about how he'd search the streets and sidewalks for scratch tickets people had thrown away, hoping to find jackpots the people who'd bought the tickets hadn't noticed. By college, that had morphed into an ability to do deep research. Again, always looking for something other people had somehow missed. Track had taught him how to work hard and to push himself. Innate speed mattered, but you won races by digging deeper than everyone else. So by the time he'd graduated, he'd assumed finance would somehow be in his future. But he was also a realist. The investment banks weren't exactly knocking down doors in Brockton looking for the next Warren Buffett. A short-term stint at a friend's startup, followed by some finance work in New Hampshire in 2017, had gotten him to his Series 6 exam, which he'd passed easily to gain a trading license. And that, in turn, had gotten him to Mass Mutual. Pre-pandemic, he'd had an office. Well, a shared space. But there were walls and a window, so it technically beat a cubicle. Maybe a couple years down the line, if he was lucky, he'd find his way onto a trading floor. And even when COVID hit and the office had shut down and he'd traded the suit for sweatpants and his commute down 93 to a short stumble to the laptop on his kitchen table, he still considered himself lucky to have a job in finance. He knew a lot of people who had it a lot worse. As his daughter reached the bottom of the slide, he lifted her up with both hands high into the air. She was laughing. He was laughing. Neither one of them gave a damn about the chill in the air. And yet, somewhere deep inside, Keith still felt that old kinetic spark. Deep down, he still remembered what it was like to be the fastest kid in his neighborhood. The kid who broke records. The kid who got to the finish line first. It was a feeling he wasn't quite ready to put aside. Four hours later, that kinetic feeling was still there as Keith descended the steps to the basement of his three-story home. Upstairs, Caroline was putting his daughter to bed. The dinner table was cleared. The dishwasher was turning away, leaking rivulets of soapy water onto the kitchen floor, something Keith would probably have to fix himself because it was ridiculously hard to get someone who knew anything about dishwashers into your house during a pandemic. But at the moment, none of that mattered. He stepped off the last step and into his basement which was mostly finished, if more than a little sparse. There were kids' toys on shelves along one wall, boxes filled with games and puzzles and a cabinet by the stairs, but the small room at the back of the low-ceilinged space was all his. When they'd first moved into the house, he'd had a desk upstairs with a window overlooking the neighborhood. But it hadn't been long before his daughter's finicky sleeping habits had banished him to the basement. Three long steps, and he was through the door into what he jokingly referred to as his kitty corner. One of his daughter's stuffed animals, a cat, of course, because in his house it was all about cats, was perched on the inner doorknob, and there was a poster of a cat hanging by its paws attached to the back wall. Beneath the cat, the painfully banal quote, hang in there. It wasn't the only cat poster Keith owned. He had similar posters rolled up and rubber-banded together stored in one of the cabinets across the basement along with a couple of cat-themed calendars and other feline-related paraphernalia, such as mugs, baseball hats, and more t-shirts than he'd want to admit. At the moment, he was wearing one of those shirts, emblazoned with a cat wearing dark aviator glasses, superimposed above a pair of fighter jets. In front of the poster was his desk, supporting three large computer monitors, as well as his laptop and a Bluetoothed keyboard. It was a fairly sophisticated setup, made even more impressive by the large, articulated microphone hanging above the desktop, 
painted a deep shade of crimson which matched his even more imposing chair, made by the high-end gaming outfit Secret Lab, crafted in PU leather with black suede trim. The chair was a limited edition, high-backed, adjustable design sporting the crest from House Lannister from the HBO show Game of Thrones, which was, of course, a lion done in gold. The chair had cost Keith a small fortune, and Caroline had raised both eyebrows when it had arrived via UPS. But in the end, it seemed a small indulgence. Much of what he'd spent on the chair had been made up for by the cut-rate video streaming system he'd set up facing his workstation, and the mostly freeware editing software he'd added to his laptop's hard drive. Keith lowered himself into the chair, mentally preparing himself for the evening ahead. Behind him, affixed to the wall behind the cat poster, was a rectangular white projection screen, which could double as a digital whiteboard. When the camera was going, his laptop often filled the board with notations, flowcharts, calculations, and trading statements, though for the moment the board was blank. Although he had an overall plan for the evening's broadcast, these things usually took on a life of their own. Once that camera went on, Keith liked to let that kinetic energy take over, which meant even he had no idea where he'd end up. By day, he was a mild-mannered suburban dad who worked at an insurance company and taught advisors how to sell stocks. But down in his basement, he could become someone else. He took a deep breath as he surveyed the rest of his desk's surface, making sure the accoutrements he'd need for his broadcast were where they were supposed to be. Closest to his keyboard was an Uno deck, and next to the brightly colored numbered cards, a red bandana, currently resting around the neck of an unopened bottle of craft beer. Next to the bandana and the beer, his magic eight ball. The toy was stupid and very 80s. A shiny black sphere you would shake with a little window that gave words of advice. When Keith was a kid, he'd ask it about girls, sports scores, things like that. The ball hadn't known very much about girls, even less about sports. But when you didn't like the answer it gave, you could always keep shaking until it told you what you wanted to hear. In practice, it wasn't all that different from the way most people at his day job picked the stocks they were selling to their customers. If a stock's chart didn't look good at first glance, turn it upside down. There was always a way to convince someone to buy. He leaned forward and coaxed the computer screens to life. On the closest screen was his current portfolio, the various lines indicating the different stocks he'd purchased through a variety of online brokerages. None connected to the company where he worked. Along with straight equities, there were a handful of more sophisticated entities, mostly option calls, to extend his leverage, since he hadn't been working with much of a starting bankroll. Months ago, when he'd first begun live-streaming himself at his trading desk, his portfolio had been varied, but in recent months, a single equity had dominated his computer screens, and to be fair, more and more of his life. When he'd first launched his basement production, he hadn't intended to focus on a single equity, and he certainly hadn't predicted that the few-minute snippets of video would morph into many hours-long live streams, or that he'd be spending hours in his trading lair, sometimes late into the night, sometimes much of an afternoon. It had all started pretty simple. A YouTube channel under the persona Roaring Kitty, built around Keith's passion for financial education. His goal had been to make short video segments explaining his mostly self-taught trading strategies which revolved around finding value that other people had missed. His methods had to do with targeted research, which he approved much the same way he'd approached competitive running. Hard work, attention to detail, an almost delusional optimism.
The YouTube channel had been accompanied by a Twitter account, as well as regular posts on Reddit, under a more Reddit-appropriate handle, Deep Fucking Value. The name was another nod toward his trading philosophies. It was the deep value that made something worthwhile, even if you had to shake the eight ball a few times before you saw it. And though he wasn't exactly becoming an internet star by the end of the summer, beginning of fall, his YouTube channel had amassed a few hundred followers at best. He'd found the experience surprisingly fulfilling. Like the rest of the world, he'd been thrown a curve by the pandemic, and suddenly here was a way to interact, show a bit of himself to a group of like-minded people, a few of whom maybe shared his sensibilities, his sense of humor, and perhaps even his trading strategies. He was pretty sure Caroline understood the live streams, the posts, the camera. It was an outlet that took him right back to those days when he was a competitive runner. Like with running, trading was all about preparation, digging deep, building a strategy, figuring out who you were up against. And then when you were ready, you made your move. Back in college, when Keith ran competitively, there was this feeling that the entire world was watching. Maybe it was mostly in Keith's head, but that was the real thrill the wind whipping by and the crowd roaring, all those eyes watching what you could do. There was always this moment when the adrenaline was pumping and your muscles were firing and your mind became ridiculously clear. You felt like you were moving on air. Maybe it was stupid. Maybe nobody was really watching. But Keith had finally found, in some small way, something that duplicated that feeling. He reached between the eight ball and the stack of cards retrieved his bandana from the neck of the beer, and tied it around his head. Then he hit a key on his laptop, faced his computer screens, exhaled as the camera flicked on. Chapter 4 Gonna be one of those nights. Kim Campbell looked up from her decaf, toward her colleague sitting two seats down the waist-high desk that ran through the middle of their shared nurse's station. Chinwei, a head taller than Kim, dark-skinned beneath his navy blue scrubs, with a posture as upright, rigid, and proud as his personality, was gesturing toward the thick safety glass partition separating them from the day room. Even before Kim looked, she could tell he was right. Chinwei was usually right. One of the most experienced RNs on their unit he had the work ethic befitting his first-generation immigrant status. There was very little that happened around the Davis Center of Psychiatric Medicine of which he wasn't aware. But at the moment, Kim hadn't needed Chinway to know something was off. Six years since she'd taken her nursing position at the DCPM, she'd acquired a second feel for that sort of thing. Nursing was all about routine. It was the moments when the routine broke down, no matter how subtly, that made you wary. The tension rose beneath her scrubs as she surveyed the brightly colored space on the other side of the safety glass. The day room was sparsely occupied, considering it was 20 minutes before the shift change, which also happened to be medication time for a good portion of the patients who called the DCPM their temporary home. Usually, the two dozen or so residents would have been milling about the carpeted mixed-use area, some waiting patiently at the round tables situated along the far wall others gathered around the seating area facing the TV, which was always turned to some innocuous game show or sitcom. Anything without car horns or gunshots, the blander the better. Kamal, another of her colleagues, was up at the medicine station, writing notes by the nearby whiteboard for the oncoming night shift. As usual, 
His notes were sparse and written so quickly that it would take a cryptographer to decipher them. Something the next shift had gotten so used to, they called it Kamalizing. When he was finished, Kim would take her own turn by the board, meticulously noting all the patients she had been caring for during her shift. A few that had been there since the night before, but mostly new arrivals, because the DCPM, being one of the premier mental health facilities in the area dedicated to involuntary admissions, was bustling during the best of times. Eight months into a pandemic, the place was bursting at the seams. But strangely, tonight, Kim could see linoleum all the way to the pastel walls at the back of the room. The few patients that were nearby had moved off to the sides, and she was about to ask Chimwei what he thought was going on when she noticed the commotion at the rear of the carpet, right in front of the double doors leading deeper into the hospital. Even through the thick partition, she could hear the cursing, the agitated yelling. It was one of the newest arrivals, a man in his early sixties who'd been brought in late in the afternoon, skinny and leaning against a metal walker, probably drying out from something. Despite his fragile appearance, he had initially been designated by the sheriff a 5150, which meant, among other things, he was a danger to himself or others. Still, he wasn't restrained, which meant he'd calmed down enough from whatever he'd been on to safely join the general population. The two orderlies, who normally oversaw the room, were on either side of him, talking in calm voices, trying to settle the man down. And even from a distance, Kim could see the stress in their eyes. It took a certain personality to work in this area of healthcare. By definition, you were seeing people at the worst moments of their lives. Kim's own shifts ran 12 hours a day, 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., and she was just one of a full shift of four registered nurses, along with the orderlies and the two doctors who roamed the unit, admitting the new arrivals through the emergency room and monitoring the patients throughout the day. The unit was locked, but the patients were free to come and go between the day room, the dining area, a separate rec room, and their semi-private bedrooms. In total, Kim and her colleagues oversaw 20 beds on the floor, and another 10 in the ER. The beds were almost always full, and like the man with the walker, none of the patients were there by choice. Many arrived in handcuffs, while others were brought in by ambulances or family. When Kim had first graduated from nursing school a decade earlier, she hadn't expected to end up in psych. She'd been focusing on emergency room nursing when she'd volunteered for a stint at a summer camp specializing in developmental issues and mental health. She'd found she had a real affinity for talking to people and a soft spot for people going through tough times. More than that, she'd realized, she loved a good transformation. Working at Davis could be demanding, but seeing people change for the better, often in a very short time, was extremely satisfying. Patients came in at intense lows in their lives, often having just attempted suicide or hitting some sort of drug-related bottom, and they usually left in a better place than when they came in. On top of that, Kim found working in a psych unit more freeing than the other nursing disciplines she'd studied in nursing school. As her colleagues had quickly learned, she'd never had much of a filter, and a psych unit was one of the few places where that could be a real benefit Connecting with the sort of patients Kim saw on a regular basis often took a mixture of straight talk and a strong sense of humor. You needed to be tough. When that ambulance opened its rear doors, you never knew whether you were going to get a college kid recovering from a self-inflicted gunshot wound or a homeless woman who'd been found wandering the freeway in her underwear or dancing on top of a car. They all came to Kim in pretty bad shape, 
and she had dedicated herself to trying to make them at least temporarily feel better. From the looks of the rapidly devolving situation at the back of the day room, it seemed like DCPM's newest arrival needed a bit of direction. If he wasn't ready to smile at one of Kim's off-colored jokes, a soft touch would probably do him a world of good. She started up from the desk, which made Chimway raise his eyebrows. I know, Kim said. Ten minutes and it's night shift's problem, but my coffee's gone cold, so I figure, what the hell? It happened so fast, she never got a chance to finish the thought. The noise hit Kim first, a crack like a leather belt being pulled tight. And then came the safety glass, little bits raining down around her, shards bouncing off the nurse's desk like an icy rain. She looked over to see Chimway on his feet, and a few yards over, Kamal, half covering himself by the whiteboard, pointing in shock. And then Kim saw it. The metal walker that the agitated patient had just been leaning against was now halfway embedded into what was left of the partition that separated the nurse's station from the day room. The patient was being restrained by the orderlies and was still shouting at the top of his lungs. Kim headed toward them, shaking remnants of glass from the sleeves of her scrubs as she went. Kamal saw her moving and reached for a sedative they kept stored in one of the medicine cabinets behind the board. But as Kim came around the desk, she could see the sedative wouldn't be necessary. Now that he'd gotten their attention, the man seemed to have mellowed and was calmly talking to the security guards as they ushered him through the day room toward the double doors. Kim turned back toward Chimway. Ten minutes, he said. Why do these things always happen right before shift change? Kim shook her head, breathing hard, as the broken glass crunched under her shoes. A short time later, she was nursing a new cup of coffee as she sat at a round table in the nurse's break room, settling her thoughts. She still had some time before she needed to leave for her parents' house to pick up her younger son before heading home to her three-bedroom apartment on the far side of town. Her older son biked back and forth between her house and her exes, which meant he wouldn't be blasting through the door until she was halfway done cooking dinner. She hadn't planned anything, so... Spaghetti. That would most likely lead to a lot of complaining, because the older one was 15, and he'd spent the day cooped up at her ex's house enduring six hours of virtual school, which, as far as Kim could tell, was virtually useless. So even though it had been a long day and there was still glass in her hair, she wasn't exactly in a rush to get home. She could at least finish her new coffee, which was on the table next to her open laptop. Her fingers were on the keyboard, but she wasn't typing, just scrolling. And the more she scrolled, the more the tension of the evening willowed away, the more her shoulders relaxed, the more she smiled. Her expression must have been the first thing Chimway saw as he pushed through the swinging doors from the hallway that led to the changing area. He traded his own scrubs for a pair of tan pants and a cardigan. He was always a snappy dresser, if a bit conservative. At the moment, he looked more like a college professor than an RN. Kim supposed it had to do with his background. She knew he was extremely well-educated, and had attended one of the top nursing schools after having immigrated to America from his native Nigeria. He was devoutly Christian and family-oriented, and a big believer in right and wrong. When they'd first met on the ward, they hadn't gotten along at all. Kim had a pretty big personality, and she could be crass and straightforward. In the beginning, many times she had inadvertently offended Chimway's more parochial sensibilities. But over time, he'd realized that even her worst jibes came with a hefty dose of love, and they'd grown very close. Often they referred to each other as work husband and wife, 
though usually Kim designated herself as the husband and Chimwei as her antagonistic wife. Dropping into the seat next to her, he was already shifting right into character, full worry creasing the skin above his eyes. I'm scared to know what you're looking at. Kim laughed, offering to shift the computer around so that he could see. Will I be offended? He asked, cowering back. Definitely. She was only partially kidding. Most of what she looked at online offended Chimwe, but to be fair, he could find something offensive in a Disney movie. Is it more right-wing baloney? She grinned, but shook her head. Chimwe wasn't alone in his distaste for her political leanings. He had been shocked, hell, all of her colleagues had been shocked, to discover that she had supported Trump in both elections. Though Kim was close to everyone on her staff, a mother bear to the other nurses, who were an extremely diverse group, covering every background and ethnicity one could imagine. They had all made it very clear that none of them understood how someone like her, educated, kind, compassionate, who had dedicated her life to helping others as a healthcare worker, could also be a Trump supporter. To be fair, even her own family had been shocked when she'd first admitted her leanings. The many times she'd tried to explain it to Chinwei, he'd only looked at her with an expression that varied between pity and dismay. Growing up in a liberal community, she herself had never expected to fall for someone like Trump. She'd voted for Obama twice, but she supposed her current politics had risen in direct relation with the disappointments that had accumulated over the course of her adult life. She knew some people would probably look at her as a walking cliché, a single mother of two who had been struggling to make ends meet since as long as she could remember, who had been let down by people, government, and life more times than she could relate. In 2008, she'd watched her parents almost lose their house in the financial crash. She herself had one failed marriage and two unexpected pregnancies. She'd liked Obama and what he'd represented, but really, what difference had he ever made in her life? When Trump had come along, she'd immediately been attracted to his contrary nature, his shitposting, his assertiveness. He was different and seemed to piss people off, and she liked that about him. And what, really, did she have to lose? She knew how upset it made people when they found out, and she'd taken a lot of heat from her co-workers during both election cycles. But she'd never been the type to keep her opinions to herself. She wore everything on her sleeves. So, of course, it was no surprise that Chinwei had hated her when they'd first met. And he'd never understand her support of Trump, who he considered racist and dangerous, and responsible for the fact that his adopted son was still unable to immigrate from Nigeria to be with him. But their friendship had advanced to the point where they could joke about it without any real animosity. On TV and outside on the street, politics could be polarizing. In the weeds of a psych ward, it was just a personality quirk another thing to joke about during the long hours toward the end of a 12-hour shift. In fact, on election day in 2016, Chinwei had bet Kim $100 that Hillary was going to win. When Trump had won, Chinwei had been so upset, he'd kept forgetting to pay. It had gotten to a point where a frequent flyer patient who knew about the bet would mention it every time he was hospitalized. Even now, though Trump had recently been voted out of office and Chinwei had earned back $100, the loss was a touchy subject, which Kim liked to bring up whenever she could. I promise, Kim said, pointing toward the computer. It's not about politics. Finally, Chinwei shifted forward in his seat and gave the screen his attention. Wall Street bets? He read off the top of the screen. What is this, a gambling site? Kim laughed. 
I guess, sort of, but no, it's a message board on Reddit. Like you write messages? Sometimes, but mostly I read them. Kim had stumbled onto the WSB board five years ago entirely by accident. And truth be told, she had first gotten there because of her politics. She'd been on Reddit, a social media site that was basically a giant chat room broken up into boards catering to just about every hobby, political stance, belief, philosophy you could imagine. Since right before the election of 2016, she'd been led there via Twitter, which she'd been on since 2014. And she'd gone to Reddit entirely because of Donald Trump. She'd discovered a board dedicated to Trump followers called R. The Donald, which was basically a 24-7 Trump rally. Because of Reddit's belief in personal privacy, in stark contrast to sites such as Facebook, and the fact that the chat rooms, though moderated, allowed anonymous people to post almost anything they liked, under the very loose content rules, from the very beginning, R. The Donald had been filled with over-the-top, contrarian dialogue which then rapidly morphed into a chaotic hotbed of conspiracy theories, questionable speech, and an immense amount of verbalized anger. But despite the wildness of the Trump board, Kim had loved the community elements of being part of a conversation with people who at some level fought like her. From the Trump board, she'd found her way to Wall Street bets. She hadn't known much about WSB's history, but had learned a bit from reading posts. It had been founded by a 30-year-old tech consultant named Jamie Rogozinski, who had wanted to build a forum for people who weren't cut from the conservative cloth regularly associated with Wall Street to discuss stocks, investing, wins, and losses. From the very beginning, the site had catered to risk-takers. The idea that Wall Street was, to many people, a glorified casino, that people often bought and sold stocks in the same way that others bet on horses, cards, or roulette wheels, wasn't unique to WSB. But perhaps the users who gravitated to WSB were more willing than anyone else to say so out loud. And unlike many other sites dedicated to talking about stocks, the WSB board was a place where people reveled in the misery of their losses. The bad buys that lost them their shirts as often as they crowed about their wins. Although Rogozinski had founded the site, he had eventually ended up getting removed from the very board he'd created when accusations surfaced which he disputed, that he was trying to monetize the sub for personal gain. In his place, a variety of moderators had attempted to keep order over the years, a constant task in the Wild West of one of the few truly anonymous corners of the web. When Kim had first stumbled onto the site, the moderator at the time had actually been Martin Shkreli, a hedge fund iconoclast known in the media as the Pharma Bro, who was pilloried for raising drug prices to obscene levels purely for profit, and who eventually ended up in prison for securities fraud. Shkareli was just the sort of brazen, outspoken personality Kim found herself gravitating toward. Even if she didn't respect what he stood for, she was intrigued by his wild, often unhinged personality. The site itself, she had quickly realized, was a free-for-all, but it wasn't just idiots and amateurs talking about stocks. A lot of the posters were day traders with experience and knowledge, and reading their posts was like taking a crash course in the stock market. And running beneath the constant conversation was something Kim recognized. An undercurrent of anger toward the rules that always seemed stacked against regular people like her. She'd started visiting the site more and more, often reading the WSB board late at night, after she'd put her kids to bed. She loved that she was part of something that felt oddly conspiratorial, 
The WSB board was asking questions she herself could have articulated. Why leave Wall Street to men in suits? What had men in suits ever done for her? And why the hell should men in suits have all the fun? What does this mean? Chinwei asked, running his finger along the top of the screen, reading the small print an inch beneath the Wall Street Bets logo slash mascot, the image of a blonde-haired trader in sunglasses and a suit and tie, like something out of an 80s video game. Like Fort chan found a Bloomberg terminal. Kim grinned. Fortran was one of the most notoriously dirty sites, a bulletin board, really, that bridged the gap between the dark web and more popular social media. And a Bloomberg terminal was what real Wall Street traders used to take money from regular people like her. It's kind of a motto. Wall Street bets is a place to talk about stocks, buying and selling. You mean investing? Sometimes, sometimes gambling. Sometimes they're one and the same. The thing is, on this site, anything goes. The more subversive, the better. Chinway kept reading, and the wrinkles above his eyes grew deeper. There's a lot of bad stuff here. Kim nodded. The moderators tried to keep the site relatively clean, but when you had a large number of anonymous people posting, sometimes you got ugliness. If Facebook was the model social network, Wall Street Bets had a fierce anti-social tinge to it. The moderators didn't appear to be there to silence anyone, just to keep it somewhat civil. The more Chinwei read, the more disturbed he seemed. A lot of the messages were wrapped up in pretty disgusting language. And many of them contained visual memes, video and pictures. That could get pretty blue. But Kim liked to think of the ugliness as sort of a smokescreen. It was a self-selection mechanism that kept the suits away. Guys who actually worked at Bloomberg terminals might be turned off by foul language and perverted memes. But regular folks who wanted to stick it to the suits? They'd found a home in the WSB board. Retards, Chinwei read. Apes. Terms of endearment, it's mostly self-referential. He looked at her, and she shrugged. If you keep reading, you'll see that some of the people on here are pretty sophisticated. She leaned past him and scrolled to one of the messages. It was a deep dive into a particular equity, an analysis that went on for more than three paragraphs. It was the sort of research that no doubt had taken hours, maybe days, to compile. It made a pretty good case why the current price of a stock seemed undervalued to the poster, and why he was making a very big buy. Beneath the text was an image, a screenshot from the poster's market account, showing what he had purchased. Chinwei whistled. Is this real? This number? He spent that much? And then he posted it here? Why would he do this? She shrugged. In some ways, what went on within the WSB board was incredibly intimate, almost as intimate as if these anonymous strangers had been writing about their sex lives. This was real money, or at least it appeared to be. And this guy was taking an enormous risk. And he was telling Kim about it, showing it to her in real time. You didn't get more intimate than that. And you can buy stocks through this? No, here you talk about them. To buy them, you have to go somewhere else. She reached below the table and into her purse, which was on the floor by her sneakers. The same sneakers she wore all day below her scrubs. Sometimes she changed into pumps before she got to her mother's place. And on very rare occasions, she exchanged them for heels when she went out to meet one of the other nurses for a drink or if her best friend, Angie, happened to be up from Pasadena. Most days, though, 
She'd had enough of breathing through masks at work to want to put a new one on to sit outside a restaurant and watch other masked people scurry by. Besides, who needed a social life when you had an antisocial network? She put the phone on the table between herself and Chinway, then began pushing through her apps until she found the right one. Then she hit the image with a slightly chipped nail, turning her entire screen a single shade of green, save for the little feather floating a quarter way down from the top. What is this? Chinway asked. A video game? It's much cooler than a video game. She opened the app, watched as Chinway's eyes went wide. It's Wall Street, Chinway. Wall Street simplified and digitized and shrunk down so small you could fit it in your goddamn purse. Chapter 5 Christ, I hate unicorns, Emma Jackson thought to herself, as she tried to find a comfortable sitting position on the ultra-modern sofa in the center of the vast waiting area of the shiny, absurdly modern, brand-spanking-new Menlo Park headquarters of one of the fastest-growing companies in Silicon Valley. It was a difficult task, considering that the sofa was way too short, which meant Emma's knees were almost to her shoulders. She'd never thought a piece of furniture could be pretentious before she'd started working with Valley Internet companies. But by her sixth year in the rapidly growing fintech industry, she'd visited enough headquarters to know that anything, and she really meant anything, could be pretentious. Windows could be pretentious, like the enormous 20-foot-high ones that doubled as walls surrounding the open waiting area where she was seated. Ceilings could be pretentious, like the vaulted wooden one above her head with its exposed beams and deep tones that would have been more suited for a ranch-style country estate or a fancy beach house than a tech company's lobby. Courtyards could be terrifyingly pretentious, like the one on the other side of those windows, paved in wood and cobbled in stone, complete with a fire pit surrounded by a phalanx of potted plants. Even so, Emma supposed, the Menlo Park offices were a step up from the company's previous headquarters in Palo Alto, basically a carved-out shell squatting near a strip mall, just a stone's throw from where the two young unicorn foals had been roommates at Stanford, before they'd grown their rainbow-spewing horns. Those offices had been Warren-like and undoubtedly lower rent, and yet, somehow, Emma had been just as intimidated when she'd visited, back in early 2016. Maybe her feelings of inadequacy had been triggered by the vast murals that had covered nearly every inch of the walls of the original offices, drawn in green and silver hues by a talented artist named Nigel Sussman. The floor-to-ceiling paintings had depicted scenes set in the fictional setting of Sherwood Forest, and had depicted the fanciful story of Robin Hood and his merry band told through characters that all happened to be cats. The new Menlo Park offices had murals as well, more cats, but the merry band was now seen driving around in cars and floating through space and riding motorboats. Emma had to admit she preferred the original motif. At least it was on the nose, and either way, she didn't quite get the growing, internet-fed infatuation with the feline species. She supposed she was just being stuffy showing her age with her outdated opinions on unicorns and cats. She was only 39, but at the moment she felt ancient. It didn't help that because of the open architecture of the waiting area, she couldn't avoid watching the two young entrepreneurs she had come to see 
maybe a dozen yards away, halfway into a photo shoot in front of one of the many slabs of cat-infested wall. The photographer had already started on them when she'd first arrived, and the smiling assistant who had led her to the waiting area had offered her a cappuccino, which she'd politely declined. The last thing Emma needed was to try to juggle a steaming cappuccino while balancing on the damp couch, like some performer in Cirque du Soleil. So instead, she had nothing to distract her from the sight of the two impossibly young-looking men moving through awkward poses for the photographer, as a related journalist tossed them a stream of innocuous questions. Emma wasn't sure which magazine or newspaper or blog or podcast the journalist was with. B.I., the W.S.J., the Times. Hell, it could have been cat fancy. At the moment, the two prancing specimens in front of her were arguably the most sought-after magical creatures in the valley, even if the world at large was still mostly unfamiliar with them and their rapidly expanding company. Vlad Tenev and Baiju Bat weren't household names, but their product was spreading through households and dorm rooms at an exponential rate, like a phone-borne virus powered by pixie dust, exceptional design, and more than a little triggered greed. In just a handful of years since their inception, Robinhood was now well on their way to making true on their promise to upend the stead direct-to-retail consumer banking industry by putting the power of a Wall Street bank in the palms of anyone with a cell phone. On paper, Robinhood might have seemed like just another online brokerage, Schwab, Fidelity, E-Trade. But in practice, it was something else entirely. A disruptive, ingenious, jobs-like twist aimed directly at millennials and amateurs. A mobile portal to the stock market that was slicker than anything that had come before, as usable and compelling as a slot machine. Emma watched as Vlad and Baiju tried their best to fulfill whatever vision the photographer was trying to convey. Vlad especially, but both of them really, seemed so eager and accessible. Baiju gave off a warm, intellectual, spiritual vibe with his wavy hair, scruff covering his jaw, a smile that was as charming as it was Cheshire. Vlad was more like a puppy dog or a stuffed animal, with eyes like a doe and long, straight hair that was more Prince Valiant than Robin of Loxley. Obviously, the two young men were best friends who shared a vision, and they didn't appear anywhere near as socially awkward as their resumes and origin story might have suggested. Then again, Emma had been in the business long enough to know that a good origin story had as much basis in reality as any other fairy tale. Still, every unicorn-led company had one. And Robin Hood's was as storybook and accessible as a magical forest full of cats. Emma had already heard much of the Robin Hood myth since she'd arrived at the waiting area, parceled out in perfectly practiced answers, mostly from Vlad, to the softballs hurled by the fawning journalist. A fairy tale for sure, Silicon Valley style. Vlad and Baiju had been two immigrant kids, Vlad from Bulgaria and Baiju from India, who had met as undergrads at Stanford, bonding over the fact that they were both only children of professorial parents, and that they shared majors in physics and math. In 2008, Vlad had matriculated to a graduate program at UCLA, planning to become a mathematician while Baiju had gone to work at a trading firm near San Francisco. When the markets crashed later that year, spurred by the fall of Lehman, the massive investment bank, the best friends, on Baiju's urging, decided to pack their bags and chase the American dream. They'd headed east with the idea that they could use their mathematical skills 
to build a trading startup to offer highly sophisticated tools to hedge funds and banks who were clawing their way out of the turmoil by turning to automated strategies to trade ahead of orders, flash trading as it became known, which turned pennies made on large volumes of tiny spreads into billions of dollars. But the story went, Vlad and Baiju became increasingly unsettled by the notion that their business was basically helping rich people get richer. As market inequities and the resulting anger turned into the movement known as Occupy Wall Street, a mass protest of mostly the young and angry who took to the streets of New York to agitate for change. The two friends began to question their role in helping hedge funds and bankers stomp all over retail traders. When one of Vlad's close friends went as far as to accuse him of profiting off the unfairness of the markets, he and Baiju had decided to try and use what they had learned and the technology they had developed to level the playing field. They'd chosen the name Robin Hood for obvious reasons. The medieval mythical character Robin and his merry band of thieves had made it their mission to redistribute wealth by stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. Vlad and Baiju built their own mission statement in allegorical style. Instead of redistributing wealth, they would democratize finance, giving the retail traders Wall Street had spent a century steamrolling the necessary tools to fight back on even ground. Robin Hood's plan was simple and twofold. Offer regular people commission-free trading and do away with minimum account balances. Furthermore, the company from the start would be built around the smartphone rather than the computer, because if there was one thing young people knew, loved, and trusted, it was that shiny little screen in their hand. Emma blinked as the photographer's flash went off, catching Vlad and Baiju in a faux casual moment of conversation. Of course, Vlad had his phone out of his pocket for the shot, no doubt open to the Robin Hood app. Even in her most jaded moments, Emma had to admit the app was beautiful. Vlad and Baiju had certainly built their portal with their audience in mind. Simple, slick, and addictive. Opening an account was as easy as logging into Facebook, and once you'd transferred some funds, any funds, to your profile, you could trade equities with a push of a button. Search for any stock you'd like, and the app brought you to a single page with all the information you might need. Price, an instant chart showing daily, weekly, monthly, yearly change, volume, and a big fat button on the bottom just begging you to trade. The color scheme was gorgeous, and there were plenty of visual, auditory, and even tactile incentives along the way. Hell, when you made your first purchase, confetti rained down the screen. In Emma's opinion, they hadn't just leveled the playing field by giving the average Joe a sophisticated trading tool that fit in his pocket. They'd turned the entire stock market into a highly playable video game. And if there was one thing the millennials and college kids who gravitated toward Robin Hood loved and intimately understood, it was video games. Emma knew that the average age of a Robin Hood user, a base that had passed 2 million by 2018 and would grow by a factor of three, then double again in the next two years, was around 32. But the median was much lower, somewhere in their 20s. And to Robin Hood's credit, it was certainly mostly Main Street, not Wall Street, clicking those buttons and watching that confetti fly. They'd democratized Wall Street, just as they'd promised. But what Main Street didn't realize was that democracy usually came at a cost. When you looked a little deeper, the fairy tale frayed at the edges, and Robin Hood wasn't quite the bane of the rich as the myth might have led one to believe.
Emma shifted against the couch, willing her legs not to fall asleep, as she continued to wait for the photographer and the journalist to finish their work. No doubt the pictures would come out great, and the magazine profile, newspaper article, or blog post would rave on about disruption, equality, maybe even fairness. And that would all be true. But Emma knew better than most. The story was painfully incomplete. Because what was less obvious about the Robin Hood story, what barely made it into the glowing stories and fairy tales, was how Robin Hood actually made their money. And who could blame the magazines? Payment for order flow was a mouthful, and it didn't make anywhere near as good copy as democratizing finance. In simple terms, Robin Hood was able to offer zero commissions because their users weren't actually their customers. They were essentially the product. Robin Hood bundled up and sold their users' trades to market makers, giant financial firms such as Two Sigma, Susquehanna, but primarily Citadel who could near instantly analyze the trading flow and profit by taking tiny slivers out of the spreads between bids and asks. Because Robin Hood's main users were amateurs who made risky trades, and more and more gravitated toward more leveraged and even riskier plays such as options, Robin Hood could command a premium from the market makers, whose profits went even higher the more volatile the trading flow. So the same people who had benefited from Vlad and Baiju's flash trading software were now benefiting even more from Robin Hood's democratization of finance. Emma didn't fault them for their profits, nor did she fault Robin Hood for the way they filled their coffers. She was a clear-eyed professional who worked for a fund herself, after all. And Robin Hood's users were getting to trade without commissions. So in theory, everyone won. It was the moments when theory chafed against practice that things became a little less crystal. Another flash went off reflecting off Vlad's almost plasticine eyes. And for a brief moment, his gaze connected with Emma. And then he quickly glanced away. She didn't fault him for that, either. She was used to that reaction. No doubt her meeting with Vlad and Baiju would be short, and way less fun than a photo shoot. Unlike the journalist, she wasn't there to talk democracy, or Occupy Wall Street, or cats playing medieval dress-up. She wasn't from Silicon Valley. She was from Chicago and she was there to talk nuts and bolts. And as little as Vlad wanted to talk payment for order flow, he'd want to discuss her specialty even less. Not because it involved some uncomfortable truth that would be hard for the public to swallow about how Robin Hood made its money, but because what Emma did for a living was, to an outsider, torturously boring. Emma had no problem admitting it to anyone who asked. Clearing was the least glamorous part of finance and one that very few people actually understood, or ever wanted to understand. Like payment for order flow, it had to do with the piping behind how trading worked, and it was almost never talked about in cultured company. You'd never see an article in a glossy magazine about clearing, and nobody was asking Emma to pose in front of any murals. But that didn't make what she did any less important, or what she had come to talk to Vlad and his team about any less imperative. It wasn't the first time Emma had visited Robin Hood to discuss clearing. In fact, when Robin Hood had first opened its doors, Emma's bosses, through one of the companies in their portfolio, Apex Clearing, had helped launch the revolutionary brokerage, taking care of the boring side of the business so that the two unicorns could frolic unencumbered by worries of what might be flowing through the roots beneath their hooves. 
She could still remember that initial meeting, when her bosses, Matt Halsizer and Jenny Just, brilliant billionaires in their own right, who had built one of the most forward-thinking, if under-the-radar, fintech conglomerates in the world, had tried to explain, in as simple terms as possible, why it was vital that anyone trying to build a business in the banking space had to fundamentally understand clearing. Emma hadn't even needed to see how quickly Vlad's eyes had clouded over during that first meeting to know that their words were not hitting home. Vlad's vice president of business development had been standing on a skateboard through the entire presentation, and when Matt had offhandedly mentioned the 30s rules that outlined how much money, separate from the trading money Robinhood took in from its users, the company would need to settle trades with the federal clearinghouse, the man had commented, 2030? That's so far from now. Matt had dutifully explained that the 30s rules referred to the 1930s. Back in the 1930s, when many of the regulations surrounding the clearing of stock trades had been put into place, entrepreneurs who wanted to get into banking didn't stand on skateboards during meetings or have walls covered in murals showing cats with bows and arrows. Everyone in the room had agreed. Robin Hood's design was brilliant. But as Matt had put it at the time, Vlad, you're Michelangelo. You're an artist, not an engineer. And this isn't some painting, some beautiful sculpture. This is a building. St. Peter's Basilica. If it falls down, people are going to get hurt. But it had been obvious from the start. The adults in the room weren't going to get through to the unicorns. And it was little surprise that a couple of years later, Robin Hood made the decision to handle clearing in-house by building out their own clearing division to act as an intermediary to the federal clearinghouse which monitored all their trades. It was magical thinking at its best. You don't fully understand something that people are telling you is incredibly important, so you decide you can do it better yourself. Now, two years later, Emma was back at Robin Hood on behalf of her company to see if perhaps they'd want to revisit the conversation. But watching the two entrepreneurs as they finished their photo shoot, both of them barely giving her a glance, because she was probably about as interesting to them as the potted plants outside, she knew they weren't going to listen. They were going to continue to do this their way. She didn't see any skateboards lying around, but it was clear to Emma that the unicorns were running Sherwood Forest, which was really more like Neverland, forever devoid of adult supervision. Besides, they probably thought they hadn't built their app for the types of adults who'd want to supervise them anyway. And despite their business model and the way they actually made their money, they were adamant they hadn't built Robin Hood for the fat cats at their trading desks on Wall Street either. Emma had to wonder, who exactly did they think they'd built Robin Hood for? Chapter 6 Caledonia, Michigan The Gray Slog of 2 p.m. Sarah Morales stretched her tired calves against the vinyl footrest of a reclining chair in Station 3 of the Shiny Locks Salon, as she leaned as far back as the cushioned headrest and her own aching shoulders would allow. Her phone rested gently on her stomach, rising and falling with each fatigued breath, but she could still see the phone's screen just fine, no matter how far back the chair took her, mainly because her stomach was now about the size of an overripe grapefruit or a small cantaloupe, but certainly bigger than it was a week ago and in recent days seemed to be growing by the minute. Still, despite the stomach and her calves and the fatigue that seemed to hit her this time every day, 
too close to lunch to justify a snack and too far from dinner to justify a meal. Being four months pregnant had its advantages. Nobody was going to fault her for taking a few minutes for herself in one of the unused salon stations, which was surprisingly private, due to the thin plastic partitions they'd put up because of the pandemic. The milky white plastic sheeting on either side of her was just transparent enough to keep her from feeling claustrophobic. Even in a space that was mostly chair, from the footrest just a few bare inches from the mirrored wall that ran the length of the salon to the headrest, which hovered a few inches over a hair-rinsing bowl that hadn't been used since the place had reopened. Getting your hair done was one thing. Sarah would even call it essential, even if the CDC or the president or the governor or whoever seemed to be in charge that particular week disagreed. And the shiny locks salon took every precaution imaginable. The client wore a mask, the stylist wore a mask and a face shield, and everything was kept about as intimate as a really bad first date. But the powers that be had determined, if your head hit that bowl and the warm water was flowing, essential morphed into recreational, and that was a bridge too far. Of course, Sarah wasn't at the shiny locks for reasons essential or recreational. She was there for a paycheck. A few inches from her chair, leaning up against the plastic partition, was her broom, which she used to sweep up all those shiny locks, lest they accumulated into dangerous mounds that would threaten to trip up the pair of stylists who catered to the handful of Caledonia's moderate-incomed residents, who still cared about their appearance. Which was about four customers a day at best, who came in and out of the shops as if they were pulling off a bank heist, masked, counting the minutes of shared air, using as few words as possible to communicate what they needed. Sarah wouldn't have been surprised if most of them left the car running in the parking lot, bottles of hand sanitizer piled up and ready to go. Even this late into the day, Sarah's broom was almost as hair-free as when her husband, Trevor, had dropped her off at work that morning. At the moment, there was only one customer in the salon, two stations down, pretending to read a magazine she'd brought from home, as if everything were normal, as her stylist worked cheap extensions into her hair which meant Sarah had plenty of time before she'd need her broom again. Plenty of time for her newest pursuit. Something that had been taking up more and more of her downtime, which seemed to far outpace her uptime, marked by the almost neon green glow that was coming from her phone. Sarah couldn't quite remember when she had first downloaded the Robinhood app and opened her trading account, but it was certainly sometime during the past year. Like many others, she assumed, it was that crazy Reddit board that had driven her to the slick online brokerage. Before she'd stumbled onto Wall Street bets, she didn't have any memory of being interested in the stock market. Though she'd taken a few economics courses in college, finance had never really excited her. And like many others, she'd found the WSB board entirely by accident, in the early months of 2020. At the time, she'd been almost entirely occupied with planning her wedding, her dream wedding, actually, the one that was supposed to have taken place at the end of the year. A couple hundred guests, her entire extended family, a church filled with candles and flowers, her dad walking her down the aisle while everyone stood and smiled and cried and clapped. A reception in the ballroom of a not-quite-luxury-but-really-really-close hotel, with past hors d'oeuvres and an open bar and a live band. Her dream wedding, which never happened, because COVID because 2020. Because. But at the time, she couldn't have known what was coming. So she'd spent most of her free time digging through wedding sites on the internet. 
It was a frog pond hop from pictures of lavish, out-of-her-price-range weddings on Pinterest to postings on Facebook that had eventually led her to a Reddit board dedicated to floral arrangements. Some random evening, as Sarah had lurked through a heated discussion about the relative merits of tulips versus lilies, she'd noticed a short thread knocking another unrelated board. The posters were going on about how perverse and disgusting that other board could be, how it seemed to be dominated by young men who called themselves retards and autists and degenerates, and used foul language and dirty memes to make whatever points they were trying to make. Sarah had been just bored enough with tulips and lilies to take a look. When she'd first shifted to the Wall Street Bets board, she too had been turned off by some of the language. She didn't like the word retard, and she wasn't sure if what the people were posting, the crazy portfolios showing losses and gains, was real, or just mocked up bullshit. But she definitely felt the sense of community that was happening at WSB, in a way she hadn't seen on any of the other sites she'd visited. And though the majority of posters might have been men, she was certain that a fair portion of the population was more diverse, more like her than the critical ladies from the flower board might have realized. Even so, if COVID hadn't happened, Sarah doubted she'd ever have visited the WSB board again. She'd have been too busy, because 2020 was supposed to have been her year. Not just the wedding, but everything. She'd been about to turn 30, about to get married. Her fiancé had just been offered a new job as an IT manager at a small startup in Denver, Colorado. She and Trevor had made so many plans. They'd found the perfect little townhouse to rent, with views of the mountains and a short commute to his office. They'd chosen the date for the wedding, October 6th, and had even picked out their invitations. Soft white, with flowers at the corners, and a little card you filled in with your choice of chicken or fish. There should have been a third choice. COVID. Because every plan they had went right out the window as soon as the pandemic hit. Instead of moving to Colorado, they'd sheltered in place like everyone else. Three months of wiping down groceries, showering after visiting the pharmacy, masks, and even gloves. Sarah had watched as friends who had weddings in March and May were forced to cancel one by one. And with each cancellation, she and Trevor had looked at each other, knowing that October wasn't far enough away, knowing what neither of them wanted to admit. They never got to send those invitations. Worse yet, the startup in Denver lost its financing, and instead of a townhouse with a view of the mountains, they ended up renting a small two-bedroom in Caledonia, which was closer to Detroit, where they'd both grown up. Trevor had managed to find a new IT job, nothing fancy working in a back office of a medical device conglomerate, and Sarah had taken the job sweeping hair to have something to bring to the table. The shiny locks wasn't anything special, just the sort of chain salon you saw in small towns or strip malls. Not dirty, not glamorous. Just a place she could make a few bucks with a broom. She'd had bigger plans in terms of work. In Denver, she'd been looking into creative design, something she'd studied a bit in college. But for the moment, it was more important to contribute what she could to the household. Canceling her dream wedding opting instead for a small ceremony in the backyard of her parents' house, had been a hard pill to swallow. But the day had been beautiful even so, sunny and clear enough, and her father had indeed walked her down the aisle, even if only a handful of family and close friends had been there to witness the proceedings. And though Sarah had mourned the wedding that hadn't happened, shortly afterward, she'd found out the wonderful news that she was expecting. As much as she'd lost in 2020, 
as much as the pandemic had taken away, she felt she had been given something so much greater. When the baby came, she knew everything would change. It would be like a fresh start. But until then, she swept hair while watching her stomach grow, still pretty much isolated from her friends and family. She had Trevor, but sometimes even Trevor, as much as she loved him, wasn't enough. In many ways, the WSB board had filled that void. She knew it was foolish, strangers on some internet messaging site putting up memes and talking about random stocks and foul language shouldn't have been fulfilling for anyone with half a brain or a quarter of a life. But at the moment, what Sarah mostly had was anticipation. Of the baby, of things getting better, of one day finding a different job and getting back her social world. Was it so wrong that she spent a few hours a day losing herself in that mindless free-for-all? Upvoting risky stock buys and downvoting stupid burns? Even so, after a few weeks getting more and more addicted to the site, she'd realized that she hadn't mentioned it to anyone else, not even Trevor. She wasn't sure what he would have thought. In their home life, he handled the financial issues. Bills, taxes, whatever few investments they'd managed to put together. And they hardly ever talked about money. She couldn't remember them ever really mentioning the stock market. It just wasn't something they discussed. So she hadn't kept her interest in the WSB board secret on purpose exactly. But she liked the fact that it was something that was hers something she did that nobody else needed to know about. If Trevor ever did find out, she had no idea what he'd think. But at the very least, she could point to how much she was learning about Wall Street, finance, stocks. And it wasn't like she was buying stocks. Not yet, anyway. Reading the board, watching these people she knew only by screen names put huge bets on risky positions. She'd realized that she had some pretty deep feelings about Wall Street probably dating back to her childhood, growing up in the blue-collared suburbs of Detroit. Her dad had been in the auto business, like everyone else she knew, a shipping manager for a parts supplier, so she'd seen the carnage of 2008 firsthand. Many of her friends' parents had been forced to take buyouts, had eventually lost their houses and moved away. And she'd read the papers like everyone else, the stories about the big Wall Street banks getting bailed out, followed by the auto companies themselves, after all those friends of her family had lost their jobs and homes, and she'd never thought it seemed very fair. It had made her angry and disappointed, and she'd grown up with a healthy distrust of government. It really did seem like the agencies put in place to protect regular people like her weren't really doing their jobs. It seemed like the only people they were really protecting were the wealthy, the banks, the car companies, the people who were already getting big paychecks and had never had much to worry about in the first place. Even though she was in her 20s, she'd already seen it all. 401ks being wiped out, the housing market going to hell, hard-working people getting screwed left and right. She understood the undercurrent of anger she clearly saw rippling through the WSB posts. Though some of the people on the board were clearly just in it to gamble, chasing the rush they got from taking risks. Many more were trying to make statements with their money. They were sharing information with each other because they saw themselves aligned against Wall Street, engaged in a sort of tribal class warfare against the wealthy, the advantaged, who had been screwing over regular people like Sarah her entire life. When these same posters pointed her toward Robinhood, an app that gave her the same financial tools the bankers had been using to game the system in their favor for so many years, 
she'd been intrigued enough to load it onto her phone. She'd even moved a little bit of money over to the app, a few thousand dollars from her wedding budget, which she'd never gotten to spend, along with part of the COVID check, her stimmy, they'd received from the government. $1,200, like that was supposed to make any real difference in her life. A couple months' rent, a couple car payments, and then she'd be right back where she'd started, sweeping hair at a salon while she waited for her baby to be born. Maybe there really was something else she could do. Maybe those crazy, foul-mouthed, degenerate posters on Wall Street bets were onto something. Reclining in the chair, running one hand over her grapefruit cantaloupe belly while she scrolled through the Robin Hood app, looking at the charts of stocks she'd read about on WSB, she wondered, would it be so wrong to take a chance? You couldn't get farther from a Wall Street trading desk than the shiny locks salon in Caledonia, Michigan. But with the information she was getting from the WSB board, married to the powerful tools of the Robin Hood app, right under her fingertips, for once, the odds didn't seem so stacked against her. The playing field didn't feel so unfair. She shook her head, then turned off her phone. She wasn't quite ready to take the next step. All those powerful tools, her new community of gamblers and class warriors. Still, she was waiting for something to push her over that edge. Until then, she was content to stay on the sidelines. It was enough that she had this outlet for her frustrations with the world she'd gotten instead of the one she'd expected. At least now she had this secret thing that was all hers. She slipped the phone back into the pocket of her skirt, then rose from the reclining chair and turned her attention back to her broom. Chapter 7 Dude, everyone thinks I'm crazy, and I think everyone else is crazy. Keith Gill leaned back in his house Lannister gaming chair as he reached behind his head and pulled the knot on his bandana tight, feeling the silken material dig into his skin. His entire body was trembling, his chest rising and falling beneath another one of his signature t-shirts, emblazoned with the image of a brindle-colored cat, mid-leap, its claws and jaws open, a feline crazy enough and hungry enough to devour the whole goddamn world. Keith steadied his pulse as he looked across his desk, making sure all the tools of his trade were within reach. His charts, his notepads, his eight ball, his Uno cards. He also had something new today, a plate of freshly baked chicken tenders. When he'd been heating them up in the oven, Caroline had thought he was preparing them for his daughter. She'd rolled her eyes when, instead, he'd carried the platter toward the door leading to the basement. I've dealt in deep value stocks for years, but have never endured bearish sentiment this heavy. Though he doubted he'd be eating any of the tendies, the term that had grown popular on the WSB board to symbolize profits made in stonks, another meme-based WSB expression, a self-deprecating nod toward the general opinion that anyone who followed or gave stock advice via a subreddit that was basically at the basement of the internet was akin to the kids who used to sit at the back of the class in middle school eating crayons, during this particular live stream. It hadn't been the best few days, and though Keith remained optimistic, perhaps, as usual, delusionally so, his daughter would probably get her fair shot at the tendies when Caroline brought her home from her afternoon visit to the park. Keith's laptop was already open and powered up in front of him, but not yet shifted over to the images he would use for the day's live stream, which was set to begin in a few more minutes. Instead, his computer was open to the WSB board, 
Over the past few weeks, he'd become very diligent with his posting to the frenzied stock forum, adding frequent updates of his trading portfolio, dovetailing with his YouTube videos and his Twitter. His posts, on the whole, were extremely simple. A screen capture of his trading account, listing all of his positions, including his total account value in dollars and his daily wins and losses. And in recent months, his posts had been made even simpler by the fact that although he had a few target stocks in his armory, his account now pretty much revolved around a single equity. A single, lone, eggs-in-a-basket asset that he'd gone totally, terrifically, obsessively long into, both through purchases of shares as well as put options, which allowed him to leverage his bankroll to fairly extreme heights. I expect the narrative to shift in the second half of the year when investors start looking for ways to play the console refresh and they begin to see what I see. Keith hadn't set out to fall in love with a single stock. It had started off slowly, more like an infection than an infatuation. Almost 18 months earlier, when the live stream was more an inkling in the back of his head than something that involved cameras and chicken tenders. But now, he had to admit, he was squarely in love. And more than that, in a relationship, as deep and true as any relationship he'd had in real life. And it was a relationship that he'd been diligently sharing through his streams and his posts. I'll post the update tomorrow, as I always do after data readouts. It will be ugly, and everyone will mock me as usual. His pronouncements had, at first, and for a long time after, been met with mostly ridicule, which, he also had to admit, had been completely fair. Though he was a grown man wearing a bandana and a cat t-shirt, not a trader at a desk on Wall Street or even in his faux cubicle at Mass Mutual, he was not, by definition, an amateur. He understood that not everyone would look at the charts that he had compiled, the research he had done, and easily see what appeared so obvious to him. He was educated enough to know that picking stocks was as much magic as it was math. There was no doubt a thin line between genius and delusion, and Keith couldn't be entirely sure which side he fell on. Perhaps the ridicule was on target. Perhaps he was so clouded by love that he was seeing something that wasn't entirely there. But I expect GME to bounce back just as it did after the two previous earning readouts. When he had first started buying into GameStop, whose stock exchange ticker was GME in July 2019, he had felt pretty much alone in his view that the company was being vastly undervalued. Sure, a 35-year-old brick-and-mortar franchise with over 5,500 stores that specialized in video game consoles, physical game sales and resales, related electronics and whimsical countercultural toys like Pickle Rick dolls and Fortnite action figures wasn't on anybody's hot list in a time when everything was going digital and online. The company's sales had dropped more than 13% in the first half of 2019 alone, continuing a trend that had been going on for years. This had coincided with a revolving carousel of leadership, with no less than five CEOs named in the past 12 months. Falling sales, vanishing leadership, little to no forward strategy. It was no wonder the stock price had been hovering between $4 and $5 when Keith had first started focusing on the company. And it was less wonder that he was pretty much on his own. But his initial interest hadn't just been contrarian. He'd applied his strategy of deep research to GameStop and had begun to see things that perhaps others had missed. This wasn't some fly-by-night operation. GameStop was one of the foundational companies in the video game space. 
a segment of the retail industry that had ballooned to more than $150 billion in 2019 alone, and showed no signs of slowing as more and more people spent more and more time online. GameStop had failed to take advantage of its built-in customer base and first-mover advantage in gaming to shift beyond its brick-and-mortar weaknesses, but that didn't mean it couldn't pivot. They'd mismanaged the shift online like many other businesses before them. Blockbuster, Borders, Blackberry, and that was just the bees. But that didn't mean there wasn't still time. Keith also couldn't discount the emotional factor that drew him to GME. Like a lot of people from his generation, he fucking loved GameStop. Hell, he was sitting in a gaming chair at that very moment. He'd grown up playing video games, and some of his favorite memories had to do with hours spent wandering the aisles at the GameStop and the Westgate Mall in Brockton, finally choosing some video game that he and his brother would devour over a weekend, only to return to the store on Monday to make an exchange. Sure, back then you had no choice but to buy a physical game at a physical store, something that younger kids would look at the same way they'd eye a velociraptor. But the experience was something Keith didn't believe could be entirely duplicated online. And those feelings never really went away. Maybe Blockbuster made no sense anymore, but that was because the thing Blockbuster had been selling no longer made sense. Games were only getting bigger. Consoles were only getting slicker. The gaming community was only growing stronger. On top of all this, Keith believed there was an added incentive to making a pick on a stock like GameStop, which everyone else thought was on the verge of collapse. There was so much money aligned on the negative side, so many short positions, that if somehow Keith was right, the ride up could be so much faster than the ride down. In his job as a financial educator, Keith had spent a fair amount of time breaking down the act, and sometimes art, of short selling in a way that less savvy customers could understand. When a trader believed a company was in trouble and its stock was overvalued, they could borrow shares, sell them, and then when the stock went down as they'd predicted, rebuy the shares at a lower price, return them to whoever they'd borrowed them from, and pocket the difference. If GameStop was trading at five, you could borrow 100 shares, sell them for $500. When the stock hit $1, you bought back the 100 shares for $100, returned them, pocketing $400 for yourself. You paid a little fee to the lender for their trouble and came out with a tidy profit. But what happened if the stock went up instead of down? What happened if GameStop figured out how to capitalize on its millions of nostalgic customers who spent billions on video games every year? What if the stock went to 10 instead of 1? What happened was, the short seller was royally screwed. He'd borrowed those 100 shares and sold them at 5. Now the stock was at 10, but he still needed to return his 100 shares. Buying them on the market at 10 meant spending $1,000. And what was worse, when he'd borrowed the shares, he'd agreed on a timeline to return them. There was a ticking clock hanging over his head, so he had a choice. Buy the shares back at 10 now, losing $500 on the deal, or wait a little longer hoping the stock went back down before his time limit was up. And what if he waited and the stock kept going up? Sooner or later, he had to buy those shares back. Even if the stock went to 15, 20, he was on the hook for those 100 shares. Theoretically, there was no limit to how much he could lose. Which meant if somehow GameStop did start to go up, 
the people who had shorted the company would begin to feel pressure to buy. The more the stock went up, the heavier that pressure became. As the shorts began to cover, buying shares to return them to their lenders, the stock would rise even higher. In financial parlance, this was something called a short squeeze. It didn't happen often, but when it did, it could be spectacular. Most famously, in 2008, a surprise takeover attempt of the German automaker Volkswagen by rival Porsche drove Volkswagen's stock price up by a factor of five, briefly making it the most valuable company in the world. In two quick days of trading, as short-selling funds struggled to cover their positions. Similarly, a battle between two hedge fund titans, Bill Ackman of Pershing Square Capital Management and Carl Icahn, led to a squeeze involving supplement maker and alleged pyramid marketer Herbalife, which cost Ackman a reported $1 billion. And perhaps the first widely reported short squeeze dated back a century to 1923, when grocery magnate Clarence Saunders successfully decimated short sellers who had targeted his nascent chain of Piggly Wiggly grocery stores. Because so many people were betting against GameStop, and brick-and-mortar retail in general, the overall short position was enormous, almost comically so. At certain points over the past six months, it had bounced between 50 and even 100% of the overall float, meaning nearly all the shares of GameStop in existence had been borrowed and sold by short sellers, all of whom had an obligation to rebuy those shares at some point in the future. So, what if Keith was right and the stock went up instead of down? It would be like watching investors trying to get out of a burning building through a single narrow door. The stock would rocket. As a financial educator, Keith knew that short selling could be one of the riskiest plays on the market. You really needed to be certain the stock was going down because your upside was limited, but your losses could, theoretically, be infinite. The fact that so many competent investors were short selling GameStop could mean the stock really was a dog. But it also meant the stock was loaded with rocket fuel, and it wouldn't take much to ignite and send it right to the moon. So, Keith had bought in. A little at first. But buying stocks, especially in the age of Robin Hood, was addictive. A few thousand dollars rapidly became a total stake of $53,000. Some in straight equity, some via call options. Keith was sophisticated enough to understand the inherent risk of options. Buying options wasn't as dangerous as short selling because your potential for loss was capped, because you could always let the options expire. You paid a fee for the right to buy a certain number of shares of a stock at a certain price by a certain date. Sold in 100-share blocks, the fee was based on demand, which related to where people thought the stock price was going. Because the fee you paid for those 100-share blocks was a fraction of the pegged price, you could leverage yourself into a very large position with a relatively small amount of money. If the price went up, you could make a lot. If it went down, your options were worthless, but you only lost what you initially invested. A full 80% of the options bought by retail traders like him expired worthless. But when you only had a little to work with, there was no better way to shoot for the moon. $53,000 was a lot, considering he had a two-year-old, a house, a wife. It was as much money as his dad earned in a year when he was younger. But Keith was that sure, even when the stock was hovering around $5 a share, that he had found value that others had missed. When he'd first posted on Wall Street bets about GameStop, the responses had varied between amusement and outright hostility. 
That hadn't changed until August 2019, when Keith had woken up on a Thursday to find the stock spiking as much as 20%. As it turned out, Michael Burry, the famous investor and hedge fund manager who had predicted the real estate crash of 2008 and had been featured in the Michael Lewis and Adam McKay movie, The Big Short, had written a letter to the GameStop board revealing that his Scion Asset Management had bought 3% of the company's available stock, 2,750,000 shares, and believed that GameStop was in much better shape than anyone realized. In an interview with Barron's, Burry had further pointed out that Sony and Microsoft were going to be launching consoles, and neither company had yet abandoned the physical disk drive, even if a significant portion of gamers had begun their games as digital downloads, which would draw more customers to GameStop, and that GameStop's current situation looks worse than it really is. Burry's buy didn't just bolster the stock price. It galvanized a portion of the community on the WSB board, or at least warmed them to the idea that Keith might not be entirely crazy. The WSB board had a certain affinity for Burry. Burry self-identified as someone with Asperger syndrome on the autism spectrum, and his quirky character in the movie, portrayed by Christian Bale, was extremely relatable to the subversives who often referred to themselves as autists in their comments. In some ways, the self-deprecation was a defense mechanism, and a way of marking the community as an antithesis to the mainstream. WSB wasn't populated by masters of the universe. It was populated by retards whose wives all had boyfriends. After Burry's letter and the resulting market effect, Keith's star had begun to rise on the WSB board. That afternoon, affixed to his regular post, he wrote, Hey Burry, thanks a lot for jacking up my cost basis. When a poster calling himself Tech Monk 123 responded, Holy shit, bro, what made you drop 53K on GameStop? Keith had fired back. The fact that it's worth quite a bit more than $8 a share and there are numerous catalysts that could trigger a reversion to fair value over the next 18 months. He'd more than doubled his initial investment and was sitting on a balance of over 113,000, but still the skeptics had far outnumbered the converted. His Roaring Kitty videos still had fewer than 500 viewers. Over $100,000. Keith knew that he could have used that money to make changes in his life. Perhaps buy a house instead of rent. Go on a trip somewhere. But with Burry in, he wasn't about to sell. You're letting hope and dreams take over instead of listening to the market, another skeptic had posted. And at the time, Keith could only respond with honesty. Why are you suggesting my thesis is grounded in hope and dreams and not legitimate analysis? As the months had passed, Keith hadn't altered his opinions or wavered in his beliefs. Even before GameStop had been forced by the pandemic to close all of its U.S. stores, and even before they had released their abysmal 2019 holiday sales figures, Keith had dutifully continued posting his statements, filled with so much more blood red than green, as he gave back nearly every penny he'd gained. When a commenter calling himself Brutal Pancake challenged him on his determination, man, there's deep value and there's a rotting carcass. To me, this thing started to stink a while ago. Keith had responded with what became a bit of a personal motto. Yeah, there's deep value. Then there's deep fucking value. Sure, a part of Keith knew what he was doing was crazy. He was a grown man sitting in his basement with a bandana tied around his head, wearing a cat t-shirt contemplating a tray filled with chicken tenders. 
a grown man with a YouTube channel under the name Roaring Kitty, posting on a subreddit under the handle Deep Fucking Value. That rational part of him knew. Love could be dangerous. The belief that powered you forward could become the thing that killed you. But even if that was true, hell, he wouldn't be the first grown man destroyed by love. Chapter 8 Sounds like a soft drink. The lines around Jeremy's dad's eyes crisscrossed into a dramatic squint, adding years to his still mostly youthful appearance, as he sized up the water trap just a dozen yards ahead of them down the fairway. Even with his rapidly receding hairline and the sprinkle of gray that ran through the waves of what was left of his hair on either side, Andrew Poe didn't look like a man pushing 50. But the more he talked, the less likely anyone would confuse him with anything other than a middle-aged dad. Or maybe a Brazilian television show. You sure you're saying it right? Just take your swing already. We both know it's going in the lake. His dad finally turned his attention to the ball in front of his boots, which rested on a patch of frost-covered grass. He gripped the golf club with both hands, then awkwardly leaned forward to get the head of the thing close enough to the ground. The club was much too short for his nearly six-foot frame, and there was a slight bend in the metal right below the grip. It had been like that when they'd picked up the club at a neighbor's garage sale during Jeremy's last visit to his parents' home, around Thanksgiving. The neighbor had tried to sell them an entire set, along with a scuffed bag. But Jeremy's dad had figured the one club and a handful of balls were enough for a start. Neither one of them actually knew how to play golf, after all. YOLO, his dad said, squaring up for his swing. It does sound kind of cool, though. He raised the club over his shoulder. Even more awkward now, clearly the motion of a man who'd never taken a golf lesson in his life. Neither of them had any business wandering around the sixth hole of a course like the Sugar Mountain Country Golf Club, even if it was a public course at the tail end of December, and the ground was covered in frost. There was even snow piled up by the hole, which was on the other side of the partially frozen lake, though it may as well have been on the other side of North Carolina, for all the likelihood that they would get the ball anywhere near it. Still, it was nice being outside with his dad. And it was especially nice because it was, after all, Christmas break. It didn't usually snow this early in the season. Maybe that, too, had to do with the pandemic. Maybe because nobody was going anywhere, global warming had just plain stopped. And Sugar Mountain, North Carolina, was on its way toward another ice age. The long drive from Durham to his parents' house in the resort town up in the Blue Ridge Mountains had been both fun and annoying. The traffic had been sparse, the scenery beautiful along the three-hour straight shot down US 421. But Jeremy had been forced to listen to his brother rattle on about his dorm life for much of the trip. Even with all the restrictions, it was clear Casper was having a better time at school than Jeremy, which was why Jeremy had made sure they were both wearing masks for most of the trip, and he'd both test and quarantine when he got back on campus. He owed that much to his bubble, after all. But outside, on the golf course with his dad, Jeremy could feel almost normal. His mask was off because the breeze was blowing and his dad kept a healthy distance. And besides, there was nobody else around. Which was probably a good thing, because they weren't exactly wearing golf attire. Jeans, sweatshirts, jackets. And Jeremy was in sneakers, while his dad had on weird, fur-lined boots he'd bought in the shop at an American Indian casino west of Asheville. Worse yet, 
they had only the one club between them, which his dad suddenly brought down in a mighty swing, connecting with the ball and sending it skittering forward at a terrifying angle, more a line drive than a gravity-defying arc. The ball made it halfway across the lake before descending to the icy surface. Two skips and a jump, and then it plunked deep into the water. You can't teach that, his dad said. Despite the ugly shot, Jeremy knew that his dad was more of an athlete than either he or his brother, who got their elongated physiques from their mom. Andrew Poe had played multiple sports in high school before settling on soccer in college. He'd remained mostly in shape as he'd aged, though he was a little rounder around the middle than Jeremy remembered from his childhood. But seeing some extra weight on his dad didn't bother Jeremy. Quite the contrary. Most of the time, Jeremy could forget that his dad still saw the oncologist every couple of months for routine checkups, but he doubted he'd ever stop worrying about any changes he noticed in his dad's health or demeanor. You must have practiced while I was at school, Jeremy said as he took the club from his dad. Then Jeremy reached into the pocket of his jacket, retrieved another golf ball, and dropped it in front of his shoes. Of course, his dad responded. Been out here every morning with your mom since we moved in. So this YOLO, it's like a motto? Jeremy tapped the ground with the head of the club, checking its weight. It's more of a financial strategy. You do the research, you dig into the fundamentals, you weigh the risks and the opportunity for profit, and then you bet it all. Jeremy lifted the club over his shoulder, took aim, and swung with all his strength. The head of the club missed the ball by a good half foot, and Jeremy nearly toppled over from the inertia. When he finally steadied himself, he was smiling. He had to admit, it did sound kind of ridiculous. YOLO, you only live once, seemed the sort of tautism you read in a self-help book, urging you not to sweat the little things, and maybe book that trip to Ibiza or splurge on that new leather coat. But as an approach to investing, it bordered on the profane. And yet, the more time Jeremy spent on the WSB board, the more he'd become convinced that for regular young people like himself, caught up in this irregular moment in time, facing a historically uneven playing field, there was a perverse logic behind shooting for the moon. Jeremy wasn't surprised that a large faction of the WSB board had, over the past few weeks, been galvanizing around the trading philosophy, specifically as represented by one of the fastest-growing stars on the site, a poster calling himself Deep Fucking Value. Since discovering DFV's GameStop posts, Jeremy had spent many hours watching the guy's live streams on YouTube, which he put up under the name Roaring Kitty. And Jeremy had to admit the guy was really charismatic. DFV was smart, open with his research, and explained the logic behind his trades in easy-to-understand terms. He didn't seem to be trying to snow anyone, and he didn't seem to have any ulterior motives. He just really loved GameStop and had decided to take a YOLO position on it putting down as much money as he could on a bet that the stock was going to the moon. And shockingly, that bet hadn't evaporated like 90% of the YOLO trades Jeremy had followed on the site. In fact, it had gone staggeringly well for DFV. Although the stock's fortunes had changed slightly for the better after Michael Burry had announced his interest in the company in the summer of 2019, things had really begun to roll just a couple months ago when in late August an SEC filing had reached the attention of DFV and his followers on YouTube and the Reddit board. On August 28th, an entrepreneur and near-billionaire named Ryan Cohen 
had filed with the SEC that he had quietly acquired 10% of the company's float, 9 million shares, at around $8 a share. Cohen had put $76 million behind his belief that GameStop could turn things around. But unlike DFV, who was basically a guy on the internet who liked cats, Cohen was an e-commerce genius, who 10 years ago had founded an online pet food company called Chewy with $15 million in capital, and had then grown it into a quarter-billion-dollar revenue business that he'd sold to PetSmart for $3.35 billion. When Chewy had gone public in 2019, its value had exploded to over $43 billion. Cohen's investment in GameStop had been a major catalyst for the stock, driving it up over the next couple of months by a factor of five. And that rise had turned DFV from just another voice on WSB to one of its legends. Jeremy had nearly memorized the video the man had posted, just two days earlier, on Christmas, December 25th, marking the crazy run he'd already been on with the stock. In that video, posted under his Roaring Kitty account entitled, Let's go! DFV had looked uncharacteristically overwhelmed. He was still in his signature red bandana, but instead of a cat t-shirt, he'd had on a black tee with the slogan Game Over in video game font. A nod back to nearly every video game from the 80s and 90s, which ended with those wonderful, unavoidable words. Hey, what's up, everybody? Cheers! DFV had started the video. And then he'd gotten right to the point. His $53,000 investment in GameStop had turned into over $1 million in profits. DFV had appeared as flabbergasted by the turn of events as anyone. He was just a regular guy. I certainly do not drive a Lambo. We rent this house that you see. It's been a wild ride for us as a family. And it has been so much fun to have experienced that with you over the past couple of months. To Jeremy, it was such an incredible thing to witness and it didn't seem to be the result of some lucky gamble that had paid off. It really seemed like it was the culmination of a strategy. See, Jeremy said as he moved back into a reasonable facsimile of a golf stance, the thinking is, if you're a big Wall Street bank or some rich guy in a mansion, you can afford to diversify your portfolio. Take away the risk, aim for regular, solid returns. But when you're some normal schmo with a mortgage or school loans or car payments due, this roaring kitty, Right, when you're someone like, well, us, diversifying is just a way to tread water. Earning a little here and there doesn't get you anywhere. When you finally sell your positions, you still have the same problems you had before. You still have the same life with the same bills to pay. Bills, who pays bills? Jeremy laughed. He knew he was privileged. His dad still sent him checks every month to cover his living expenses and tuition. Before COVID, he had worked part-time doing data science for a professor to help cover his student loans. But now he was mostly on the parental dole. He knew there were a lot of people on the WSB board who were a lot worse off than he was. The pandemic had hit the community hard, and many were out of work. Which made it more understandable to Jeremy that they were willing to try to use whatever little money they had to change things, and not just incrementally, but monumentally. You know what I mean, Jeremy said. So instead of listening to the sorts of financial advisors who write columns in USA Today or talk down to you on CNBC, you do your own research, then dig as deep as you can and go big. You go all the way big. Jeremy swung the club again, this time making contact with the ball. Instead of going forward to the lake, 
The ball shot off to the right, slapping right into a low snowbank. Jeremy shook his head, reached into his pocket for another ball. I get it, his dad said. Diversifying is for boomers, not for the kids in the back of the class with the crayons. Jeremy raised his eyebrows. Obviously, his dad had been paying attention to at least some of the emails and phone conversations he'd had with Jeremy over the past week before Christmas break. Maybe he'd even spent time on the WSB board himself, checking out DFV's posts, each one titled GME YOLO Update, and the responses, maybe even some of the ridiculous memes. Jeremy was sure much of it had gone over his dad's head, or more accurately, beneath his sensibilities. Repurposed scenes from Planet of the Apes or Star Wars, let alone videos of people drinking pee because they lost a bet on a stock, were not going to convince his dad that the board was a place to go for sound financial advice. But as Jeremy had tried to explain, the board functioned in the language of its peer group. If Jeremy had been living through his senior year in a regular era, he'd be talking to his friends in bars, at dorm parties, maybe even at frat houses. Instead, he was socializing over the internet in a frat called Wall Street Bets. YOLO was something that made perfect sense in that environment, and Jeremy had come to believe YOLO investing in GameStop made even more sense, not just because of what Roaring Kitty was telling him about the stock's potential. Jeremy could see that the company's fundamentals had issues, and there was little reason to believe their management had the fortitude to right the ship. And heck, Jeremy knew how out of date the current incarnation of GameStop felt to anyone who'd visited one of the company's many franchises in recent years. Walking into a GameStop was like stumbling into a flash mob equivalent of a garage sale, items strewn about with no sense of order, used video games piled up next to plush toys and random entertainment-related merchandise. Wandering that maze of shelves was disjoining and sometimes terrifying. A line of fuzzy pink-stuffed animals might suddenly end with some horrifying rodent creature holding a blood-soaked chainsaw. And if, somehow, you did find what you were looking for, checking out was always an adventure. There was always a line, and it was always moving like an ice floe. The store clerks often seemed as needy, lonely, and conversation-starved as the franchise's stereotypical customer. But even so, Jeremy believed GameStop could change. He believed Ryan Cohen was really going to help the company, and the WSB community was beginning to rally around GME. More and more of them were following DFV into the trade, and Jeremy understood there was power in that. And it was something he wanted his dad to understand, too. Jeremy knew his dad had as much YOLO in him as anyone on the WSB board. Jeremy could still vividly remember the day when his father had come home early from his job at a mid-level firm outside Raleigh, where Jeremy had lived until the age of seven, and announced to the family that he wanted to drop everything and buy a boat. Right in his prime earning years, as his boss at the law firm had whined, he'd packed up the family and taken them to sea, carting them all down to Florida and then the Bahamas to a life spent traipsing between islands while homeschooling, splayed out on the canvas of a catamaran. Seven, eight, nine years old, Jeremy had lived this crazy idyllic life, wondering if his dad had gone insane or had made the best decision anyone could make. Until at ten, his dad had finally sat him down next to his brother and told him the secret he'd been carrying since they'd left North Carolina. Cancer. In his kidneys. And aggressive. That night, Jeremy had gone online and delved into what his father had told him. Even then, Jeremy had been good on the computer, 
stealing as much Wi-Fi as he could whenever the catamaran was within shouting distance of a port or a bigger, more technically equipped boat. Even a ten-year-old's depth of research told him that his dad's odds weren't good. To make matters worse, the timing of his dad's cancer diagnosis had coincided with the financial collapse of 2008. The market was plummeting, so his dad hadn't just quit his job, which he'd potentially have lost anyway, but he'd also contemplated the possibility that he'd die, leaving two young children for his wife to support, and he'd sold all of his stocks and his house and moved the family to the boat. Thankfully, Jeremy had gotten lucky. His father had beaten the odds and, through surgery and treatment, had managed to survive his cancer and rebuild his health and much of his bank account. He'd gone back to a position in the legal field and recently bought the home in Sugar Mountain. But deep lessons had been learned along the way about how quickly things could change, how unfair life could be, and how taking a chance and doing something crazy was often the right play to make. So how much are you thinking? Jeremy's dad asked. And Jeremy could hear the change in his voice. Despite the memes, perhaps something on the board had gotten through to him. Michael Burry, the growing short interest, DFV's unfailing optimism. Or maybe he believed it was finally time to let Jeremy pilot the boat. I've got around $6,000 in my school account, Jeremy responded. That's for textbooks and food. Both are overrated, Jeremy. Jeremy swung the club again, hitting his second ball square in the center. The ball went up in a reasonable arc, then plunked straight down into the lake. His dad clapped him on the back, and the contact felt good. Because at the tail end of 2020, just about any contact felt good. Maybe I'll buy some too, his dad said. YOLO, right? And then he grinned, reaching for the club. Chapter 9 The adrenaline rush took Kim by surprise as she raised her finger over the pill-shaped orange digital button on the bottom right corner of her phone's screen. She hesitated for a moment, letting the feeling wash through her. She'd been bone-tired from another long shift just a few minutes ago, when she'd first sat down at the table in her small, functional kitchenette, pushing aside a stack of her older son Brian's school books and nearly upending one of her younger son, Kyle's, latest Lego constructions, something resembling either a submarine or a megalodon, depending on whether the thing sticking out of the top was a fin or a periscope. Now the exhaustion had completely left her body. She was about to do something out of character, exciting, and maybe a little crazy. And boy, did that feel good. She glanced beyond the table, across her compact living room to the hallway that led to her son's bedrooms on the other side of the apartment. It was a little after 9 p.m., one of those miraculous instances when the house was quiet. Kim didn't believe for a moment her kids were actually asleep. No doubt Brian had his iPad out from its hiding place under his mattress. Why did 15-year-old boys think moms didn't know about mattresses? And Kyle was probably under his covers with a flashlight, working on building something with popsicle sticks which were his current obsession, or maybe tinkering with the Lego Death Star she'd gotten him for his last birthday from some website in China for a tenth of its American price. Her ex had given her a hard time about the Death Star, saying it was setting the poor kid up for unattainable expectations or some other such nonsense. But Kim had let the comments slide without putting up much of a fight. Things were good with her ex, 
Actually, for once, things were pretty good with both of her kids' fathers, which happened about as frequently as a full lunar eclipse. So she hadn't wanted to do anything to rock the boat. Her life could be hard enough without having to deal with bickering old flames. Besides, she wasn't doing poorly, all things considered. Her apartment had three bedrooms, a new dishwasher, and windows that overlooked a quiet courtyard. And the complex surrounding her was mostly new construction, which meant things weren't falling apart yet. And her neighbors were nice, mostly professionals who respected her because she came home in scrubs, and her kids didn't light fires in the hallways. Actually, they were really good kids, who had made the best of what could have seemed a pretty dysfunctional situation. Brian split his time between her home and his dad's, and they all did their best to get along. She and Brian's dad hadn't been to court, because technically they'd never been married in the first place. They'd met in college, Penn State, as freshmen. Kim had been a fencer, and Brian's dad a member of the lacrosse team. They'd gotten close extremely fast, and by the end of freshman year, had been spending every night together in each other's dorms. It was the other day after Kim had gotten home for winter break her sophomore year when she'd realized something was off and took her first pregnancy test. Having a baby at 19 had not been part of either of their plans. But somehow, Kim had still managed to finish out her sophomore year at Penn State before moving back in with her parents to have the baby. When she'd started up again at California State University in the fall, things between her and her ex had gone sour. She had realized then that life was something she was going to have to get good at on her own. Six years later, she was caring for a precocious kid while just starting out as an RN, when baby daddy number two came into the picture. It had started as a Facebook friend request from one of her ex's college lacrosse teammates, who, it turned out, had always had a crush on her. A few innocent messages had turned into a relationship, which had then led to her taking a spontaneous trip to Massachusetts to pack up all his stuff, including two dogs and two chinchillas, and driving back across the country to California. A few months later, they'd had a backyard wedding, with her son as the ring bearer. Kyle had come along a short time later, and then things had fizzled with dad number two, leading to divorce, many court dates, more than a few missed child support checks, and her ending up a walking cliche, single mother of two carrying a whole lot of debt and her fair share of broken dreams. But she was on much better terms with dad number two now that Kyle was a bit older. And her nursing career had taken care of much of her debt. Child support wasn't something she could count on. But both her kids were well adapted and happy. She had her hands full with the two of them, and her house was usually a wreck. Brian was often in his room, but Kyle had a way of taking over whatever space he was in with his projects. Popsicle sticks could swallow a bedroom, and a package of balloons could somehow take over her living room. But once she'd accepted that her house was a battle that she'd always be on the losing end of, things had gotten better. Still, the moments of downtime, when she was alone after the kids had turned out their lights, felt like little miracles. And this particular moment seemed even more blessed, because she'd been waiting for it since she'd clocked in at work. She knew she could be an obsessive person and had a tendency to get carried away with things and she'd had plenty of hobbies before, fencing in high school and college, self-improvement, which had led her on a year-long dip into the teachings of Tony Robbins in her 20s. She'd even gone to a few of his weekend retreats, learning how to identify her needs, focus her energy, make decisions that led to real change. 
and, of course, Trump. She'd also spent months delving into her own ancestry, spurred on by her best friend Angie, who had coaxed her to apply to a charitable organization called the Daughters of the American Revolution, whose main membership requirement was that you found a direct relative who had been a verified American patriot. Enough targeted digging, and Kim had found a bunch of relatives who qualified, including a great-great-great-uncle who'd carried a musket, though she wasn't certain he'd ever pointed it at anyone. When she set her mind to something, she knew how to go deep. But what was going on between her and the Wall Street Bets board was something on an entirely different level. What had started as a fun way to spend her free time at work and home, browsing messages and applauding good stock buys and making fun of atrocious losses, had morphed into an active pastime. Not only was she posting on the board, mostly questions about financial tactics and particular stocks, she had even stuck her toe into the pond using her Robin Hood account to buy a handful of stocks after reading posts that were particularly persuasive. Nothing serious. Because Robin Hood had no account requirements, she'd been able to put in a few hundred dollars and throw it at tickers. And even though she'd lost most of it, the thrill had been undeniable. Now she was ready to go even further, because over the past few weeks she'd watched, like everyone else on the WSB board, something that felt unique and significant. She didn't know a lot about GameStop. Her older son loved it, of course, because he spent most of his time playing video games. And though he downloaded most everything directly from the net, there was still something fun about walking around a store dedicated to the type of people who knew the difference between Fortnite and Roblox. But Kim didn't care so much about GameStop, the company, because she was finding herself completely caught up in GME, the meme stonk. It had started with DFV's posts and live streams. She'd gone back through them as if she'd been researching her own ancestry, looking for a patriot, looking for whatever it was that had made Roaring Kitty fall so in love with the stock that he was willing to put what had to be most of his money into one big bet. She'd listened as he'd told her about Michael Burry and Ryan Cohen and their support of the company. She'd taken notes as he'd talked about the short interest what it might mean for a stock to have nearly all of its shares shorted. And she'd watched in awe as he turned that $53,000 bet into a $1 million fortune. And the thing about the way the WSB board worked, it wasn't some high and mighty figure on TV talking to an audience or some expert throwing out terms she'd never hoped to understand. DFV was just another ape, another retard, talking about this crazy thing he believed in. Kim loved every minute of it, and she wanted in. She knew that part of what was driving her was FOMO, a fear of missing out on something that had already turned this regular dude with a mullet and a cat fixation into a millionaire. And she knew that she was less swayed by the long, drawn-out due diligence posts that often accompanied DFV's comments than the cult of personality that had developed around him and his YOLO attitude. Once she'd decided to get off the sidelines, it had just become a matter of picking her moment, and the amount she could bet, if not responsibly, at least without risking her family's station. Overall, she was a pretty frugal person. She still drove her 2006 Honda with over 230,000 miles on it. She bought all her and her children's clothes at thrift stores. She used coupons religiously, and only shopped during sales. She also had a 403B through her work, which had a nice little nest egg built up for her retirement. It was all put into some safe Vanguard ETFs and, despite the corona dip, 
was still holding its own. Since she'd already lost about $400 on random stocks she'd read about on the Wall Street board, she had to be careful. But she'd cautiously moved $5,000 into a trading account. It was a large amount, but it was a figure she'd chosen for two reasons. She felt comfortable that they could survive losing the entire thing. And if DFV was right and GameStop could, at best she figured, double from where it was sitting at around $16 a share, she would make enough to pay for Brian's braces. Her plan was to start with 100 shares. Compared to some of the posts she'd read on the board, it was a pittance. But for her, it was enormous. And she felt the moment in every cell as she finally brought her finger down on that buy button. Although it was after market hours, the Robinhood account seemed as thrilled as she felt. The phone vibrated in her hand, and though she didn't get confetti, she'd already enjoyed that spectacle when she'd bought the crap tickers weeks earlier. She did get a nice pulse of dopamine in her veins. Tomorrow morning, when the market opened, Robinhood would fire its arrows towards Citadel or Two Sigma or Susquehanna, and Kim would be well on her way. Chapter 10 no matter how much they tried to dress up the examination room, the jungle of potted plants by the door, the glossy posters of sun-bleached Greek islands on the walls, the soft music fluttering out of speakers hidden behind mountains of medical equipment, even the overpowered ventilation system that failed to mask the antiseptic bouquet characteristic of any remotely medical location, Sarah couldn't shake the anxiety that always seemed to hit her in places like this. And even though her husband was waiting just outside in their car, owing to Michigan's tough COVID precautions, and the nurse, in her light blue scrubs and mask and face shield, was presumably smiling and warm and talking like this was the most routine thing in the world, Sarah couldn't help but feel intensely vulnerable. Lying back on a table surrounded by machines and a masked stranger was surreal enough. She was doing so with her shirt pulled up to reveal her bare stomach, which was now clearly way past grapefruit and deep into cantaloupe, even trending upward along the cucumis scale, leading right toward goddamn watermelon. The nurse was quickly joined by an OBGYN, who swept into the room, gowned and gloved, as if he were about to conduct an orchestra. The man's jowls were hidden beneath his mask, but his eyes lit up behind his glasses, and that, alone, made Sarah feel a bit more at ease. Looking at him, Imagining the smile that she couldn't see, she knew she was being foolish. This really was routine, and she was young and healthy and pregnant, and getting more pregnant by the day. The doctor gave her shoulder a friendly squeeze, then moved to the machine next to her bed, checking the screen. The machine was turned away from her, but she could see the greenish glow reflected off one of the glossy posters on the wall, flickering pixels surfing the waves that frolicked off the Amalfi coast. The doctor said something to the nurse, and the woman approached the table, then gently helped Sarah lift her shirt a little farther up her stomach. This is going to feel a little cold, the nurse said as she squirted some sort of clear gel onto Sarah's stomach from a white tube. Then she moved aside, and the doctor approached, holding a small, pokey-shaped device attached to a long cord. He placed the device right against the skin of her stomach, harder than Sarah had expected. She flinched against the pressure. Then the doctor moved the device around, pressing inward here and there. He was looking back at the machine, so Sarah did too. 
She still couldn't see the screen fully, but it had angled a bit more toward her with the doctor's motion. She could now make out fuzzy lines, and she squinted, trying to make sense of them. The doctor kept moving the device, obviously searching for something. He was also clicking buttons on a keyboard attached below the screen. Sarah held her breath, wanting him to find what he was looking for, but also fighting the sudden urge the pressure was bringing on to laugh and pee at the same time. Laughing would be fine, she figured, but she really hoped she didn't pee on the table. That would have been embarrassing. The doctor stopped moving, and the way his eyes crinkled, she could imagine his smile widening. He nodded to the nurse, who hit another key on the keyboard, and then a noise filled the room. A thump, thump, thump. Is that? Sarah asked. The doctor nodded, then pointed to a spot on the screen. Sarah could see it now, a little sack of motion, the beating heart, and then nearby a head, or what she thought might be a head, and a little hand reaching out. It's beautiful, she said. She couldn't believe she was looking at her baby. Boy or girl, she didn't know yet. And she wasn't sure she wanted to know. But she was looking at her child. In a matter of months, that child was going to spring out into the world. Would it still be a place of masks and quarantines? Sarah only knew that for her, that little heartbeat meant that nothing was going to be the same. And for that, she was immensely thankful. She wished Trevor could have been there, next to her, squeezing her hand. She thought of him alone in the car, probably worried, but probably also handling work calls, one after another. For days now, she'd been coming home from the salon to an empty house, making dinner for herself and leaving his half in Tupperware containers in the fridge. She understood, and the tiny creature on the screen across the exam room made her understand even more. Although 2020 was coming to a rapid close, things hadn't gotten any easier for them yet. Her thoughts were interrupted when the doctor hit another key on the keyboard, freezing the screen. You want a souvenir? he asked. When she nodded, he receded toward an adjoining room where a different machine would print out the photo. The nurse handed Sarah a wad of tissues for her stomach, then headed after the doctor, leaving Sarah alone to the job. Sarah did what she could with the mess on her skin, then pulled her shirt back over her bump. Still by herself in the room, she wasn't sure if she should get up from the table. Instead, she decided to wait and retrieved her phone from her purse, which was on a chair close enough to reach. She was about to text her husband and then her mother, tell them about that little peanut and the heartbeat in the hand, but instead found herself in a familiar place one that should have felt completely wrong in an examination room, lying on a table with the frozen image of her baby on a screen nearby, but somehow didn't. In the past few weeks, the WSB board had become a second home, as much a part of her life as Facebook or Instagram had ever been. It made her smile, and lately it had also made her think, because something new was happening, something dramatic, and something wild. She'd read all of DFV's posts. How could she not have? They had risen to the top of the board and were drawing a huge following now. She'd also watched some of his live streams, though who had time for five-hour-long free-for-alls about GameStop, no matter how charismatic the guy was. 
and she'd scrolled through many of the comments about what he'd been saying, both on YouTube and Wall Street Bets. It was obvious, a lot of people were buying in, and the stock had risen to close to $20 a share, which she gathered had been DFV's original price target when he'd first started posting about the company being undervalued. But Sarah didn't believe that stock rise had much to do with the bits of news he'd gone on about, the interest of that strange guy from the big short, or even the meme-friendly pet food entrepreneur. She believed something deeper was happening. Alone in the examining room, waiting for the doctor to return, she scrolled through Wall Street bets to a post she had bookmarked, which she'd first found when she'd been reading backward through different comment streams to try and understand more about what was going on. That was one of the great things about Reddit, and the internet in general. As the saying went, it wasn't written in pencil but pen. And once something was dropped into that ether, no matter how innocuous, it could grow to have a life of its own. Of course, the meme-like video that had been posted on October 27th to the WSB board by someone calling himself Stonks Flying Up had been anything but innocuous. The post, GME Squeeze and the Demise of Melvin Capital, was a video lifted from the television miniseries Chernobyl about the meltdown of a nuclear reactor in Russia that had caused an international catastrophe. Stonks Flying Up had added subtitles of his own to the video equating what he believed was going to happen to something called Melvin Capital. Apparently, a large Wall Street hedge fund with a massive short position in GameStop, with the meltdown at Chernobyl. How the battle between the GameStop longs and the Wall Street shorts would end with Melvin exploding in a fiery nuclear blast. The video had turned into an immediate sensation on the board. Reading back through hundreds of comments, Sarah could see Melvin Capital hadn't been picked at random for the video. The seething anger toward Wall Street that so many people on the board had enunciated in so many different memes, comments, diatribes, now had a focus. A face. From what Sarah had read, Melvin Capital had come to the attention of the board at the beginning of the fall after it had filed SEC paperwork called a Form 13F, in which it had disclosed a short option position in GameStop tucked in with a number of other seemingly routine trades. But since the form was public and members of the WSB board had been motivated, and bored enough to sift through every SEC filing they could find, looking for anything having to do with GameStop, with the 13F, Melvin had unwittingly made itself into a perfect scapegoat. To the WSB board, Melvin suddenly represented everything about Wall Street they hated. A stead, respected, multi-billion dollar firm run by men in suits looking to profit on the failings of a beloved, if mismanaged, company. Sarah could see it in the posts that followed the video. Something had seriously changed. People were no longer just buying GameStop to try and make money. In fact, many of the comments said quite the opposite. People were willing, even happy, to lose every penny they put into GME to try and stick it to Melvin, to strike a blow against what they represented. GME wasn't just some stock anymore. It was a token, a meme, and it symbolized something dark and striking and of the moment. Lying there, still feeling vulnerable on that examination table, her new baby growing inside her, Sarah understood that moment because she was living it. She felt it in her soul. 
The bubbling, unsettled anger and confusion and goddamn boredom of millions upon millions stuck at home, losing their jobs and watching their bank accounts dwindle, completely without a voice. And then fuck, some hedge fund shorts GameStop and, well, of course they do. Because maybe GameStop doesn't make much sense anymore when we're all watching the apocalypse unfold, ordering our groceries from Instacart and our dinner from DoorDash and our toilet paper from Amazon. And yeah, sure, GameStop was dying before any of this, like every other brick-and-mortar business. Nobody had cried over Blockbuster or Borders or Tower Records. So the hedgies like Melvin are going to make that bet and get even richer, and take yet another thing away from us. But, the battle cry went, maybe this time it didn't have to happen that way. Maybe for once, we could do something. Stop something. Have a voice. Make a difference. GME wasn't just GameStop. It was a rallying cry. As the OBGYN swept back into the examining room, Sarah quickly covered her phone with her palm, obscuring the screen. She hadn't yet joined the GameStop battle. She was still just a lurker, an observer. But she was gathering up the nerve day by day. Her Robinhood account hadn't thrown any confetti at her yet, but she knew that sooner or later she'd be ready. The doctor reached the side of the table where Sarah was lying and held up the picture he'd printed from the ultrasound so she could see. The photo was dark, mostly blues and greens, but she could clearly make out the shape of her baby, tiny, growing inside her. Sarah felt herself starting to cry. She didn't know if she was happy or sad, but for the first time in a long while, she felt strong. The world was unfair and the past year had been so hard. But now it felt like she was on the verge of writing her own way forward. And maybe, for once, she'd get to know what it felt like to be on the winning side. Maybe, finally, it would be her turn. Chapter 11 Winning is not a sometime thing, it's an all-time thing. Though Gabe Plotkin was firmly lodged in his rental home in Florida, having closed down the Madison Avenue offices of Melvin Capital as far back as March 13th, as COVID had just begun its deadly march around the globe, whenever he closed his eyes, he was right back in Manhattan, moving through the empty corridors of his firm, passing the glass-walled, high-tech conference rooms and starkly appointed offices, the vacant trading desks and filing centers, and even in his mind's eye, None of it felt right. You don't win once in a while. You don't do things right once in a while. You do them all the time. He knew what was off because it was impossible to ignore. The silence. To him, that was one of the worst things about this pandemic year. Even before he'd left New York for Florida, it had bothered him to his core how damn quiet everything was. The streets of the city 22 floors below his offices which should have been packed with cars and taxis and buses jockeying for position, horns honking and curses flying, in the crowded traffic of a sunny, if frigid, Tuesday afternoon. The sidewalks, which should have been packed with wave after wave of people, tourists loaded with shopping bags from the high-end stores lining Madison Avenue, businessmen and women in suits with laptop bags, backpacks, and even the odd briefcase, all talking on their phones or shouting at the taxis while dodging hot dog vendors and halal carts. Even the plaza right outside his building's revolving glass front doors, 
which should have been crowded with congregants brandishing coffees and high-priced, skillfully constructed salads around Christie's sculpture garden, lit up and glowing as the hours shifted toward evening. Winning is habit. Instead, silence. The streets, sidewalks, and plazas were pretty much empty, like the Melvin offices. Although the traumatic early days of the pandemic, which had hit New York like a Category 5 hurricane, and who would ever forget the nights filled with ambulance sirens or the terrible pictures of hospitals overwhelmed by sick patients, had receded into a dull, exhaustingly numb drizzle of anxiety-laden moments of both optimism and never-ending dread. The bustle that made New York special still hadn't returned. Like with most firms in the city, most of Melvin's employees were still working virtually, though some did scurry in and out of the offices from time to time when the business of finance made it absolutely necessary. But apart from the odd, infrequent visitor, the offices remained a vacant shell. All the offices in all the skyscrapers remained vacant shells, like so many ghost ships floating by each other in a vast, windless sea. To Gabe, such silence and the distance that now existed between himself and his traders was utterly unnatural. Melvin wasn't just a hedge fund, with its billions under management, populated by 30-odd traders and their support staff. It was a family, made up of the very smartest, hardest-working, most accomplished minds in the business, carefully curated by Gabe and his partners, sharing a single noble purpose. Winning is habit. Gabe set his jaw, still imagining he was moving through his offices, the powerful words floating behind his eyes. When you walked into most Wall Street firms with billions of dollars on their books, you were greeted by millions of dollars of artwork hanging from their walls. Basquiat's, Picasso's, Warhol's, Kuhn's. Sometimes you'd be chatting with a portfolio manager, and there would be a $30 million splash of color right behind his desk, hovering above his Bloomberg terminal. But from the start, Gabe had built Melvin Capital to be different. When you walked into Melvin, you didn't see paintings. You saw inspirational quotes. When he'd first launched the company, there had been a single quote wall. Now there were quotes everywhere. They'd cost Gabe nothing, but to Gabe, they meant more than any Picasso ever could. Especially in times like this, when it wasn't just the pandemic that had his world turning strange and unnatural, the carpeted floor of his office seeming to rock beneath his feet, he could turn to the brilliant words of people like Vince Lombardi, the famed late coach of the Packers, one of the winningest figures in all of sports history, to keep him focused on the bottom line. From the beginning, Lombardi's words had captured the philosophy behind the fund Gabe had hoped to build. To be truly successful, a trader needed to understand that you had to work hard every day and always do things the right way. Consistency trumped quick profits, and there were no shortcuts. Growing up, Gabe had been obsessed not just with Lombardi, but with all of sports. Football, basketball, but particularly baseball. So it was no surprise that he often likened what went on in the trading world to what happened on the playing fields. Some of his earliest memories were of reading the sports section of the Sunday newspaper and memorizing every statistic of every player. Once, on a road trip to a Red Sox game with his father and his friends, Gabe had spent the ride correcting them as they got the stats wrong. To other kids, even the ones who loved baseball and basketball as much as Gabe did, those stats were just numbers. But Gabe had always known there was power in them. 
Current numbers and past numbers put together in just the right way predicted future numbers. And predicting future numbers was the main, and perhaps only, true business of a fund like Melvin. In general, hedge funds were more backroom than boardroom. Despite the fact that they could be immensely large, they operated in secret, and they were reluctant to ever show their hand unless they were legally bound to do so. One of the few times a fund like Melvin let people in on their strategies was when they were first incorporated. Melvin had hit the street as a long-short equity fund, a prominent investment approach that went back many years, built around intense research, modeling that could include hundreds of companies, followed literally for years, drilled down to the cornerstones of their headquarters, and a stable of trading professionals that would include the brightest and best of Wall Street. And right out of the gate, Melvin had been a success. In 2015, they had run a 47% profit, placing them as the second most successful fund in the industry. By 2017, they had still been hitting 40% in profits. A bad 2018 had been followed by a huge 2019, and they had cemented themselves as one of the top performers in town. They'd grown to a billion-dollar bankroll, $200 million of which had been invested by Steve Cohen, Gabe's previous boss, to a fund now worth over $12.5 billion, combining long and short positions on a wide variety of stocks. Melvin's first year out, Gabe had focused on consumer companies, on which he'd been an expert at SAC. His positions had included Amazon, Foot Locker, Del Frisco's, Dick's Sporting Goods, and right out of the gate, he'd gone large, investing $900 million of his $1 billion under management. And as a long short fund, he'd also been obligated to take short positions, betting against companies, which was a tactic that, to most experts in finance, was uncontroversial. The thinking went when companies were performing poorly or were mismanaged, or were in an industry that was being overrun, or were simply likely to fail. Taking a short position wasn't just logical. It protected the marketplace by pointing out overpriced stocks, prevented fraud by acting as a check against dubious management, and poked holes in potential bubbles. Short sellers also added liquidity and volume to a stock, because they were obligated to buy the stock back at some point in the future. Yes, short sellers profited when companies failed, but usually a short seller wasn't banking on a company failing, just that the stock's price would eventually correct toward its true valuation. Sometimes, though, a trader picked up a short position because the company in question really was going to fail, because perhaps it was in an industry that was dying, had management that seemed completely unable or unwilling to pivot, and had deep fundamental issues in its financing that seemed impossible to overcome. Melvin Capital had become extremely adept at identifying just such companies. Although overall, most of Melvin's investments were long, many of its short positions had paid off handsomely. In its first year out of the gate, it had been reported that Melvin had made 70% of its profits from its short positions. And it was during this time period, at the very inception of his fund, that Gabe Plotkin had taken his first deep look into GameStop and decided to go short. At the time, it had been an uncomplicated and easy decision. In 2014, the stock had been trading at $40 a share. Gabe hadn't been alone in his position. Many Wall Street firms had read the writing on the wall and seen what was happening to mall-based retail and overextended consumer franchises. 
GameStop had an archaic business model, selling new and used video games in physical stores while the market was being overtaken by digital downloads via the internet. And seemingly no forward strategy. Sure, they had some cash and inventory and an interesting reach, but to survive, they'd need to reinvent themselves for the digital world. Gaming consoles of the future, most believed, were not going to use physical cartridges or CDs to go online. They were a business in demise, and it looked as if they were going to burn all the way to the ground. And burn they had. From $40 a share all the way to around $4, exactly as Gabe and much of Wall Street had predicted. And yet, the short interest hadn't fallen. In fact, it had increased. GameStop had proved that, at least as far as the market was concerned, the thing they were good at was failure. Even as the gaming industry ballooned, GameStop's profits decreased. And then, the pandemic. Mall retail, already on shaky footing, cratered. Although one might argue that betting against a beloved mall franchise during a worldwide pandemic was ethically dubious, Melvin's mathematical-based reading of the situation had only gotten stronger. In 2020, even as the gaming industry had its best year ever, due to homebound customers playing video games around the clock, GameStop continued to lose money. They reported losses of $215.3 million, or $3.31 per share, on top of their 2019 loss of $470.9 million, or $5.38 per share. The odds of GameStop recovering had only gotten worse. Likewise, the stock had continued to fall, all the way to $2.57 a share, then hovered back at around $5, and even so, shorts continued piling on. Just as short-selling GameStop had seemed the most obvious, ordinary, run-of-the-mill trade in 2014, Gabe might have assumed that adding more put options to his position in 2020 to leverage toward even bigger profits if the company finally collapsed would be equally uncontroversial. The fact that option positions had to be reported on a Form 13F filing with the SEC, meaning they would be made public, wasn't particularly concerning either. Even though hedge funds like to keep their strategies secret, why would a 13F filing indicating positions that included as many as 91 different companies, standard practice in the industry, make any waves? Certainly, he couldn't have predicted that a bunch of anonymous people congregating on a subreddit board called Wall Street Bets would suddenly single Melvin out to represent all of the short sellers taking aim at GameStop. Nor could he have imagined that he himself would suddenly end up being commented on, made fun of, even threatened on WSB, on Discord, another social network frequented by the Reddit crowd, and even in messages sent directly to his company. At first, the social media chatter around GameStop had been largely innocuous. The posts on social media had been infrequent, mostly isolated, and largely about how much individual retail investors liked the stock and were making money investing in it. But as the fall progressed toward winter, the tenor of the posts began to change. The posts became more and more personal and targeted, such as the infamous Chernobyl video, predicting the explosion of Gabe's firm. Although Gabe understood that the WSB board trafficked in dark humor and dramatic license, it was hard to see the humor in a lot of what was suddenly going on surrounding GameStop and Melvin's short position, and specifically Gabe himself. Some of the comments he'd seen had been steeped in anti-Semitism and hate. It's very clear we need a second Holocaust. The Jews can't keep getting away with this. 
and he himself had begun to receive similarly racist and derogatory texts. Where before, the comments on social media had been largely about buying GameStop because the commenters liked the stock, the narrative had shifted to buying GameStop as a way to attack Melvin Capital's short position. And throughout, there was an easily seen subtext in many of these posts that pitted Gabe himself as some sort of evil figure to be destroyed. Gabe wasn't thin-skinned. He'd made his bones on Wall Street, a place notorious for profanity, off-color personalities, and fight-or-die philosophies. Though he kept a low profile in public, he was known by many in the industry for being extremely likable, a good guy who could also be aggressive and intense. And it would be a lie for him to describe himself as unemotional. He had the competitive spirit of an athlete, and as the quote went, for him, winning was an all-time thing. But the hateful racist comments and the vicious memes predicting his company's fall were hard to ignore. Quite the opposite. They were the kind of thing that could light the competitive spirit in someone who played the game at the level he did. He wasn't thrilled that the Reddit mob knew about his short position, but that didn't change the fact that it was the correct play. The stock had gone up since its $5 plateau, but that didn't change the company's fundamentals. It was still a flailing business and a dying industry. The math was in Gabe's favor, and if there was one thing he'd learned to trust, it was math. Not only did he continue to believe in the short play, but in the initial days, he added to it an additional 600,000 shares via put options for the ending quarter of 2020, around $130 million in value. This was on top of the shares he had shorted, and the 13F and any public documents only revealed the tip of the iceberg. Nobody could really know how big a short position Gabe had taken, only that he was now risking a significant portion of his fund on this single bet. Other firms might have considered such a move risky, Shorting meant the potential losses were endless, and the short volume on GameStop was immense, well beyond Melvin's gamble, and was now being reported as nearly 140% of the float. That such a thing was even possible, that 40% more shares of a stock could be short than actually existed, seemed contradictory. But Gabe could take it as more evidence that his view was sound. So many people on Wall Street knew this company was going down that they were willing to borrow and borrow and borrow shares to sell short. So many shares that almost half were being borrowed more than once. No number of angry posts on Reddit could change the fact that the smart money was on the short side. And it was unlikely, if not impossible, that a stock could get disconnected from its fundamentals simply by being pushed by retail day traders. Wall Street Bets wasn't populated by professionals. It was mostly amateurs, gamblers. Hell, they called themselves retards, apes, and degenerates, terms that disturbed Gabe and that he would never use. Some of them appeared to be doing real due diligence. But did they really believe they could dislodge a ticker from a company, somehow turn a stock into some sort of token, like Bitcoin or Doge? In the deeper corners of Gabe's mind, Maybe he knew what was spurring him on wasn't entirely math, but also his competitive nature. He never put it like this himself, but plenty of others in the industry would. Gabe was a winner. And these little shits on their couches tossing off angry memes onto Reddit were losers. And they were going to learn a very painful lesson. Wherever the stock was, it was going to go down. GameStop was a melting ice cube. 
The WSB board could post all they wanted. Shit-talking, after all, was part of every sport. But Gabe Plotkin knew that time was on his side. A melting ice cube always ended up the same. A nice big puddle of water. Part 2 We like the stock! We like the stock! Jim Cramer. Game stonk! Elon Musk. Chapter 12 January 11th, 2021 Keith Gill's left boot touched the black ice first, the sole slipping against the frictionless surface, sending his entire left leg out in front of him in a bizarre angle that would have brought him right down to the sidewalk if he hadn't been holding his daughter's gloved hand in his own. She was laughing as he used her weight to anchor himself, and he was laughing too, but not only because their morning walk around the block had just turned into a circus show. He was still looking at the screen on the phone in his other hand, even though the balancing act of checking the stock news report while guiding his daughter along the poorly shoveled sidewalks of Wilmington was as treacherous as any race he'd ever run. Even more difficult than keeping his poise on that special brand of New England ice was reading a financial news report, complete with SEC filings, on three inches of screen. He supposed he could have updated the phone during his Christmas trip home to his family, but having surplus money in his bank account was such a weird and new experience. The thought that he could afford something as benign as a new phone was both thrilling and frightening even though he felt certain it was the result of deep research and due diligence, it still seemed like such an unlikely turn of events. It had been a month now since Keith Gill had officially become a millionaire. He was the first in his family to be able to say that, and it had happened because of one wild YOLO trade. Most of it was still on paper, although the phrase needed to be updated, because who the hell used paper anymore? But the $53,000 he'd put into GameStop had ballooned into a figure seven digits long. As he steadied himself while using his thumb to scroll deeper into the news report, his smile widened. A million dollars was a life-changing number, but Keith hadn't changed his life much, yet. Still, he had finally told his entire family what he'd been up to, during his Christmas visit home. Everyone had been supportive, although they might have still thought him crazy. His mother had only asked if what he was doing was illegal in any way. He'd patiently explained to her that making money on a stock, no matter how unlikely, was one of the most legal, and to be frank, patriotic things one could do. The fact that he had been talking about his trade, ad nauseum, online, to anyone who would listen, didn't make it any less kosher. And it was true. His roaring kitty livestreams had morphed well beyond the few minute segments he had planned to marathon sessions lasting late into the night. His longest had tapped out at over seven hours, though anyone who had stuck through the entire thing had to have been crazier than Keith. And his audience had grown. He was now one of the more popular posters on the WSB board. And whenever he put up one of his YOLO updates, he was certain to get a storm of comments. He didn't just have fans, he had disciples. And a fair number of them were obviously buying GameStop themselves. But he believed, or at least wanted to believe, that they were all buying with their eyes wide open. He had made it clear, often and always, that the stock market was risky, and his YOLO style even riskier. The enormous short float on GameStop was evidence that most of the experts still believed the stock was a dog. From Keith's point of view, it was a dog with a lot of bark. When he'd opened the news app on his phone, halfway into his walk with his daughter, 
It was a bark that had almost sent him to the sidewalk. His current thesis about the stock had been pretty simple. There was more opportunity for good news than bad, since all the bad was already baked in. And with such immense short pressure from Melvin and others, every bit of good news would push the price upward. 140% short shares meant that if the stock started to run, the short sellers would be on the hook for 80 million shares. And there were more like 60 million in existence. From the Reddit board, it appeared that a not insignificant portion of those shares were in the diamond hands of people like Keith, who would rather sell their grandparents than their GameStop. Keith's grin multiplied. Fall in love with a stock? He'd already married it, had kids, and was planning his grandchildren's weddings, which was why the news that had just broken across his phone was so monumental. The announcement had come from GameStop and been parroted across financial media. Ryan Cohen and a couple members of his Chewy crew were joining the GameStop board. Already, Cohen owned a significant stake in the company. On top of the 5% of the float first revealed in his filing back in August, he'd added his way to 10% in November, a position valued at over $79 million at the time. That addition of shares had been followed by an aggressive letter to the company's management, pointing out everything they'd been doing wrong and demanding that they pivot toward online gaming build up their e-presence, and try some innovative strategies, such as getting into esports, streaming, and mobile apps. At the time, GameStop hadn't seemed overly receptive to an agitating outsider, but today's news was a complete 180. Ryan Cohen was riding in like a white knight to save the company, and now Keith would be eating tendies and drinking beer on his live stream that evening, because Cohen on the board meant there was a real chance he could help reinvent the company the same way he'd reinvented the pet food business. Keith was walking faster now, and his daughter was skipping over the ice to keep up. He could see from his phone that the stock was already coasting toward $20 a share on the news. He wasn't sure it could hit a new 12-month high. It had danced around $21 a share in late December. But still, there was plenty of potential upside. In the back of Keith's mind, Visions of the beginnings of the fabled short squeeze the WSB board continuously crowed about sparked to life. But he didn't want to get ahead of himself. He tried to stay above the more aggressive storylines on the site, the ones that pitted the GameStop believers against the hedge funds, particularly the ones that made it personal between him and Melvin Capital. He didn't know anything about Melvin Capital. He certainly didn't know Gabe Plotkin. And he was pretty sure they traveled in very different circles. If Plotkin had ever driven through Brockton, he'd likely have kept the windows closed and the doors locked. But short squeeze or not, Keith believed that GameStop, the company that had already made him a millionaire, was about to have another moment. He looked down at his daughter and saw that she was still laughing because he'd almost fallen. One day, when she was old enough to understand, he would explain... Momentum was a wave that could sweep the stablest racer right off his feet. Chapter 13, January 13th, 2021 This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you, Kim thought to herself as the female tech, all smiles beneath her mask, came at her with the needle. The sleeve of Kim's scrubs were up around her shoulder, and she was in one of the little curtained booths at the back of the nurse's area, which they sometimes used to dispense medicine. But today, the place was about as private as a train station. 
The curtain was pulled back, and the entire nursing staff, along with the orderlies, was gathered to watch. Chinwe had his phone out, and two of the girls were using an iPad to get their own image, which they'd eventually print out and put on the board, right next to the shot they'd taken of the walker embedded in the partition from weeks ago, which was now displayed under the comical title, P.T. Eval Passed. If I turn into an alligator, I'm coming for all of you. The needle went in. And thankfully, Kim didn't feel a thing. She waved her other arm, taking in a smattering of applause. The moment was surprisingly emotional. Kim had never been overly panicked about COVID. She dealt with it every day, and had even done shifts in the COVID ward upstairs. But this was still a significant moment. There had never been any question. She was going to be the first on the staff to get the vaccine. There was a surprising amount of hesitancy among her colleagues, even though they were medical professionals and had seen the misery caused by the virus firsthand. But Kim felt it her responsibility to influence the others with her behavior. If watching her made even one of them more comfortable with taking that first step toward everything getting back to normal, she was happy to be the hospital's guinea pig. She thanked the tech, who was busy pressing a band-aid over the injection site. Then she was up and smiling. Chinwe and Kamal continued their applause as she passed them on her way toward the break room. She knew she had to stick close for 15 minutes, but she figured the break room was good enough. If she started to grow a tail or claws, she'd still be within shouting distance. As she went, she fought the urge to give Chinwe a hug. Too soon, she figured. Though if the shot was as good as they said it was, maybe soon the term social distancing would recede from everyone's vocabulary. Kim couldn't wait until it was just another shared linguistic memory, along with flattening the curve and contact tracing and herd immunity. And maybe even GameStop, Kim added to herself, as she pushed through the double doors, already reaching towards her phone, which was tucked in the pockets of her scrubs. The 20 minutes she'd spent waiting for the shot had already been the longest she'd gone that day without checking her Robin Hood account or Wall Street bets. But now that she had 15 minutes to kill before she could head home to her kids, she was ready to dive back into the madness. She was completely lost in her phone's screen by the time she reached the quiet of the break room, dropping into her usual seat at the round table by the door. Someone had brought donuts in honor of the vaccine, a mixed, colorful selection that rose like a sprinkled metropolis above a pair of plastic cafeteria trays. But the pastries, no matter how tempting, couldn't compete with what Kim was seeing on her phone. Her investment in GameStop had doubled in a single day. The price had shot up past $31 a share. Kim had already read through many of the comments on Wall Street Bets and had even watched some of Roaring Kitty's latest live stream. She knew all about the addition of the Chewy guys to the GameStop board, but she didn't think a change in leadership alone could account for what was happening to the stock. She'd had a million bosses in her life, and no matter how brilliant or innovative they thought themselves, they'd never made much of a difference to her day-to-day. -day. A trio of new board members, no matter how many bags of dog food they'd sold, weren't going to make a stock double. But there it was, in glowing numbers and rapidly rising graphs. Kim had made over $1,600 in the past 24 hours. Her cheeks felt hot as she went from Wall Street bets back to her account. She was so swept up in the moment she didn't notice that Chinway was suddenly hovering over her shoulder. They find another batch of ballots under a bridge. He took the seat next to her, rubbing the band-aid on his own shoulder with one hand 
while reaching for a donut from the tower with the other. Jelly, powdered. And he took such a delicate bite that normally Kim would have fired some snarky comment back at him. But she was in too good a mood. Better than a box of ballots. She showed him the phone, and his eyes widened. 3140. That's impossible. I think it's happening. The Melvin Capital thing. Chinway gave her the same look he'd given her the last time they'd had this conversation, just a day earlier. She'd been trying to find different ways to explain what the posters on Wall Street Bets believed was about to happen, mainly because she'd been trying to understand it herself. She figured she'd give it one more go. After all, she still had plenty of time to kill. The key was to find a way to make it simple. She thought for a moment, watching Chinway gingerly attacking his donut, then smiled. Let's say that donut is GameStop stock, she started. Does it have to be this donut? Yes, it does. And let's say the current market price for that donut is $5. And I'm Melvin Capital. I think that donut is garbage, so I borrow it from you. She took the donut out of his hand. He looked at her, but she just kept smiling. We make an agreement that I have to give the donut back to you in a couple of days. Kim? So I sell the donut into the market for $5, the current price. She returned the donut to the tray. I took a bite out of that. And I wait, she continued, planning to buy it back and return it to you when the price goes down, pocketing the difference. But let's say the price doesn't go down, because other people love these donuts, and they've started buying them like crazy. She starts to take donuts off the tray, putting them to the side, and buying them and buying them. Maybe a piece of news comes out, something about how donuts cure COVID. The price spikes a little higher, and people just keep buying them. The tray was now half empty, the donuts piled up on either side. And these buyers, maybe they're not just your average donut lovers, maybe they hang out on some wild Reddit board talking about how rich people, who get to the donut store early, have been screwing them out of the good flavors forever. About how this time, they aren't going to let these rich people push them around. She grabs more donuts from the tray. Now, I still owe you that donut I borrowed, but it's not just me. It's all of my friends on Wall Street, too. They've all borrowed donuts. Some of them, reading the writing on the wall, start to buy them back to make good on their debt. She takes a couple more donuts, puts them to the side, which makes the price go up even faster. But my friends have no choice now. Like me, they still need to return those donuts. She keeps taking donuts until there is only one left. The jelly donut that she'd first borrowed from Chinway. The price of donuts has gone through the roof. But a whole bunch of us still haven't covered. What do you think happens when we all try to get that last donut at the same time? Don't, Chinway warned. You know I have to. Kim gave the donut a good squeeze. Jelly oozed out from every side. Chinway sighed. But it's worse than that, Kim said. Because not only did my friends and I borrow every donut in the box, we borrowed more donuts than were ever in the box. If this continues, pretty soon the short sellers will be trying to grab for donuts that don't even exist. Chinway reached past her, finding a new unsqueezed donut, moving it far out of her reach. Now what happens? he asked. The price keeps going up forever? She shrugged. Chinway shook his head. You doubled your money. That's good. You should sell. Aren't you listening? The donuts, we're not talking about donuts. 
They'd had many conversations about their finances over the years they'd worked together, about how hard their jobs could be, about how difficult planning a future could seem on an RN's salary. And she knew, on the face of it, he was right. She was up $1,600, not yet enough to pay for Brian's braces, but that kind of money could cover a lot of bills. Still, watching the price continue to rise, reading all the comments on WSB, it really did feel like the squeeze was either happening or about to happen. If the diamond hands stood firm. You can't beat these guys, Chinwei said, as if reading her thoughts. This is a casino, and they're the house. They'll find a way to win. They always do. Chinwei was usually the one telling her to have faith. David beat Goliath, she finally responded. This isn't David versus Goliath. It's David versus Goliath and Goliath's cousin and Goliath's best friend. Kim shook her head. There are a lot of us, too. Chinway sighed again, then went back to his donut. Kim watched him take another little bite. She knew he was just trying to help, but he wasn't seeing what she was seeing. Battle lines had been drawn. It was easy to think of Wall Street bets as a disjointed, chaotic gathering place for fools and gamblers, because that's how they often portrayed themselves. But Chinwei didn't understand. The fools and gamblers had come together in a common cause, and there was great power in that sort of unity. Anger was a powerful motivator, far stronger than greed. Kim had seen it in the election of 2016, and Chinwei's blindness to it had cost him $100. Melvin Capital and their colleagues on Wall Street were proving to be just as blind, grievously underestimating the army they were up against. Kim had no intention of selling. If anything, she was thinking of buying more. Goliath thinks that he's the hero of the story, she said, as she watched Chinwe eat his donut. Right until the rock hits him in the face, 